it's amazing that considering the president has to be the crossing guard of every international conflict, the hinge point, uh, the nexus of all decisions of international capital, that Donald Trump did it for four years and there wasn't like a business plot oh, against right. him just to do like keep business going. I think you could argue that there was essentially a business plot and it was the entire the whole QAnon idea of him at war with the deep state is a boulderization of the truth, which is that the business community, business as usual, did try to get him out of there. They tried to neutralize him and then pry him out as soon as possible. And that was a two-stage process. Once for once within the Republican Party, in the form of uh like uh the party that he ruled through, because remember, he doesn't have his own group. He doesn't have yeah. his own uh, base. It's just him and his it's family. It's like him and like four guys. So the, the party fills in the structure and so mm -hmm. they determine his uh, decision making and pry him away from the, the levels of power so that his goofiness is just sort of absorbed by the ether. But then also long term getting him out of there because to limit the damage that he's doing in his just cascading manic idiocy his fucking donkey kong going ham at the swarovski <laughs> crystal shop fucking routine so the entire i mean the the media did turn against trump immediately and try to delegitimize him yes of mm -hmm. course they stoked him at every turn because it was good for business it's it, this is all the, the business working itself out the way it should and so they stacked the deck against trump now it wasn't stolen like that is the kind of over that's the dramatic narrative that you get by being a paranoid middle class freak. Mm -hmm. What was happening is, is that they uh, did what they could to try to uh, limit his damage. And that meant hoping a Democrat could get back in. And then thanks to covid more than anything, uh, Biden won because it was no longer funny to have the ape banging around around against this shit. Because, oh, maybe the state actually has to do something. All right. Well, let's get into this episode. Mm -hmm. I just want to start today by noting that we uh, recorded our uh, first episode of this series on Biden's inauguration. And we are recording our last episode of the main series just like a few days after September 11th, uh, which basically perfectly inversely tracks the arc of the episode that we are recording today. Yeah, we went through a time hole. Yes, exactly. And also, if I knew it would have taken this long, I never would have done it. Yeah, of course. Just kidding. I've had fun every step of the way, but here we are at the end. Yes. Uh, Chris has definitely done way more work for this than I have, and uh, uh, I know it's probably been more annoying. For him than me. I've had a very good time, though. Well, Matt Matt is the brains, and I am the uh, arms and legs uh, <laughs> flailing around getting everything together so, uh, so he can opine on it. But here we go. Let's go. Hi, and welcome to Hell of Presidents. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Matt Christman. And this is episode 14, American Sunset. Dead, September 11th, 2001, and 9-11 is happening. It's Wednesday, January 6th, 2021, and right-wing supporters of the outgoing president are forcing their way inside the U.S. Capitol building. It's Monday, September 15th, 2008, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average plummets 504 points as a financial crisis takes hold across world markets. It's Wednesday, March 19th, 2003, and the first salvo of U.S. bombs are being dropped on Iraq, beginning an invasion and eventual overthrow of the Iraqi government. It's Wednesday, March 11th, 2020, and the World Health Organization is declaring the newly identified virus COVID-19 a global pandemic. 
It's Friday, January 20th, 2017, and former game show host Donald J. Trump is being inaugurated the 45th president of the United States. The history of 21st century America is a series of rolling crises, each compounding the other, and the story of apparently increasing gridlock and political intransigence between the parties. But in the end, increasing consensus on what should and even can be done. Empire flails attempting to maintain new frontiers overseas, and domestically the economy leaves more and more with less and less. And even as more people are dissatisfied with standards of living and even life expectancies dropping for the first time in generations, the electorate polarizes increasingly around issues of cultural affinity. As Republican presidents get stupider and crueler, Democratic ones grow more enthralled by process, meritocracy, and the appearance of institutional legitimacy. Republican presidents seemingly face a crisis of legitimacy, securing a popular vote victory in only one of the last eight elections. Yet Democrats face seemingly constant defeat and setback at the federal, state, and local levels. The era appears as the slow grinding of gears to a halt, all the while continuing to generate destruction and misery, or at least frustration and insanity, at home and abroad. Matt, what do the last two decades look like to you? So the Bush election of 2000, which is a, in its own way, a coup, right? Like this mm-hmm. was a, a democratic election abrogated extra legally, but just it was absorbed by the system and was decreed to be okay, indicating the degree to which democratic legitimacy existed. This is the kind of thing that couldn't have happened in a previous uh, generation because the, the uh, opposition would have been too... Uh, coordinated and able to express itself politically. The Democratic Party of 2000 just was a rotten door to be pushed through. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that put the Republicans in a position to when the 9-11 event happens and redefines a country and an empire that is in a sort of malaise, in a a stupor as it sort of stumbles through this uh, global empire, uh, but is is now organized around this new framework of a war on terror, which domestically means an extension of war with another as the defining uh, politics of the crisis that is about to uh, unlo- unfurl. Because the the last 20 years has been a recurrent crisis of legitimacy among all levers of power and cultural institutions in this country as the conditions that these institutions continued to support the Reaganite, the, uh, the post Reagan civil contract where everyone was on their own, but mm-hmm. was free to pursue themselves in the market. And the government was there to be a referee on the side of capital, <laughs> on the side of property. And that that was okay because, hey, for most people who voted, they got what they wanted in the short term. But this is the era when global capitalism uh, in the United States becomes. So crisis ridden, which culminates, of course, in 2008, uh, that the supply side, basically, of the civic contract that had been imposed from above was no longer being supplied. Uh, Instead of a a dream of upward mobility over time and generational wealth accruement, there became a generalized awareness that there would be no next generation of prosperity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And our political crisis that's been gripping the U.S., uh, political system probably since mid Obama era mm-hmm. uh, if you don't if if you want to go post 9/11 uh, and it, as a response to the financial crisis 
uh, is now in a terminal state where there is no institutional legitimacy for anything that does not uh, pass a partisan screen. Uh, and that means that our politics are defined by essentially the the nervous breakdown of the American middle class as the people who got that suburban plot out of the end of the New Deal era uh, are now seeing that the deal is no longer in their favor. Uh, and politics is people in this situation who drive our politics, remember, because they are the ones who vote and participate in politics, then define our political conflict uh, until the present moment. Uh, and all of our radical politics that we take part in, they are all just drafting off of this defining conflict that is a battle at the, at the large level between global capital, global financial capital, and local fixed extractive uh, and land-based capital, mm-hmm. a national bourgeois versus an international bourgeois. Uh, but then at the, at the level of the voter, these, uh, these uh, warring uh, cultural identities, one that is a- around cosmopolitan urban liberal ideas, the other that is about uh, sort of reactionary, uh, uh, socially conservative, uh, socially hierarchical institutions. Uh, and and ideologies, and they that is the the war that we're uh, now completely defined by, and which is making things like dealing with the fucking coronavirus epidemic impossible to deal with. But then we need to trace these crises back to their beginning, or at least current beginning. So let's go back to the beginning of the new millennium and the cocaine cowboy riding it into office. George Walker Bush was born on July 6th, 1946 in New Haven, Connecticut. We reviewed the Bush family lineage last episode, so you know it's basically that with the addition of an RNC director, CIA director, U.S. president, father. George was raised in Midland, Texas, then attended the Kincaid School, a private prep school in the Piney Point Village suburb of Houston. (laughs) That's a guy. Say that three times fast, please. It's a private prep school in the Piney Point Village suburb of Houston. Nice. Which is now the wealthiest neighborhood in Texas per capita income. He then got sent to Phillips Academy in Massachusetts and from there attended his daddy's alma mater, Yale. At Yale, he was a mediocre student, member of the Skull and Bone Society, as well as a cheerleader and rugby player. He graduated Yale in 68 and earned an MBA from Harvard Business School in 1975. George served in the Texas Air National Guard and later the Alabama Air National Guard. His service record becomes controversial later, but honestly, it's boring and complicated. The point is he served during the Vietnam era, uh, but just flew some training planes around Houston and Montgomery. George struggled with alcohol abuse around this time, receiving a DUI and getting his main license revoked after a drunk driving incident in Kennebunkport in 1976. But after meeting his wife, Laura, and developing a stronger evangelical faith, Bush gave up drinking by 1986. George started an oil exploration company in the late 70s with investment from a rich Saudi oil family with the last name of Bin Laden. That was soon bought out by a larger oil company with well-connected owners, including the current CEO of the St. Louis Cardinals. This was then bought out by another Texas oil company, during which time George may have engaged in insider trading, but gets cleared of that by the SEC. 
By 1989, he's organizing a group of investors to purchase the Texas Rangers, which he then helped run as a managing general partner. And just as an aside, I, I think there's like an alternate timeline where W just stops there and becomes like the most well-respected commissioner of Major League Baseball in history. He couldn't have done any worse than Bud Selig, so I would have endorsed that for sure as an alternative. Yeah, I think he would have had fun doing that. Uh, but on we go. Bush had run for Congress in 1978 and lost, then kept his political activities mostly constrained to assisting his daddy's elections. In 1994, he runs for governor of Texas and wins with the help of some allegedly dirty tricks from campaign advisor Karl Rove. He wins the 1994 election, the same year his brother, Jeb, loses the election for governor of Florida. As governor, Bush turned budget surpluses into massive tax cuts, offloading social services into faith-based welfare programs, and executed a staggering 154 prisoners. He wins re-election to Texas governor in 1998 with huge margins, and that puts him in the right position for party insiders to get groomed for the 2000 presidential election. Matt, your thoughts on W, the guy. So since the 70s, the presidency has slowly been drained of much much of the real promise of power that it had held in the minds of members of our political class. The arc from JFK to Reagan is a massive reckoning with the limits of the office. What that means is that increasingly those seeking the presidency are only going to be motivated by a monomaniacal obsession with simply being president of the United States or, in W's case, just wanting to keep your dad from hassling him. (laughs) Bush's biography is unique among American presidents to this point in that it's the life of someone who clearly didn't give a single thought to becoming president, even in a family of extremely prominent politicians, until he was forced by his dad to quit dicking around and find a real job. (laughs) It is is absolutely amazing. You look at his biography, he is a party dude, who never wanted to grow up. He is a first man child. He is a fucking Will Ferrell <laughs> character. It's not the it's the other way around. He's playing the Will Ferrell character. Will Ferrell's not playing him. Like just a guy who wanted to have a good time and who was always being oppressed by his father's expectations of him. There's a famous anecdote about him coming driving drunk into Kenny Buckport, crashing his car into trash can. W HW comes out and W challenges him to a fist fight right there in the driveway. So he, his career before politics, his business career that was supposed to make him the most qualified American president because he was going to be our first MBA president, was him <laughs> just being passed around among his dad's cronies. Here, <laughs> yes. give Junior 5% of this. Give him, it's, he was essentially there to lubricate business deals for his dad. Like, we don't have to bribe George H.W. Bush. We give his dipshit son 10% of a year. Or ten percent of the of the cross, so mm-hmm. he was essentially just a bag man for his dad, and then an ornament for the Rangers ownership squad, uh, and then because there's nothing else to do, and his dad's still always on his case to make something of himself, he just agrees when a bunch of kingmakers like Karl Rove see him and his affect as something that the American people would enjoy. <laughs> and he just went along for the fucking ride the entire time. And the, every president after him is going to be somebody who is either a completely fixated psychopath around themselves uh, or somebody who thinks they're still at a frat party. <laughs> 
My wife and I uh, frequently joke that another way to phrase the classic story of, of all of human literature, uh, in, all of, in all of humanity, there are only really two stories. A man finds a new dad or a man fights his dad. <laughs> and this is the story of a man fighting his dad. He's always fighting his damn dad. Just leave me alone. If I if I become governor of fucking Texas and get like and it's it's not and I'm not working like to indirectly for you, will that count? <laughs> and and of course the funny thing is is that like JFK, he was the wrong son for the office. Jeb was the one. Jeb was the smarty pants, uh, but he lost his first run for governor of Florida, so he didn't have the position uh, to run for president and. They had to be like, well, W, how about you? And he did it. And that sets Jeb back 16 years, but we'll get to that in a minute. So as we covered last week, Bush steals or wins the 2000 election by a tiny margin. He staffs up his administration with mostly folks from his daddy's administration, like Dick Cheney and Condoleezza Rice. And the guys pulling the strings in the Ford administration, like Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill and, of course, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld though Cheney had also been a Ford advisor with Rumsfeld. So let's take a minute to imagine the Bush administration that could have been, were it not for certain um, events. Bush immediately gets to work cutting taxes, and by June 2001, he signs a tax act cutting $1.35 trillion in taxes over 10 years, slashing the top marginal rate, reducing estates and capital gain taxes, overall taking taxes down to the lowest levels in over 50 years. If that's his major first-year accomplishment, what do we think the rest of it might have looked like? Considering the fact that the Enron scandal exploded in the first year of his term and his and his administration's deep connections to Enron, he had flown on the Enron jet during the 2000 campaign. He had considered Ken Lay on his shortlist for energy secretary nominees. Mm-hmm. And those relationships would have been much more uh, fixated upon in a more tranquil news environment because the <laughs> Enron scandal was a gigantic piece of news. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it was greeted with shock, but it was shock that was absorbed into the greater 9-11 narrative eventually and then totally forgotten about. Absent 9-11, you might have a situation where the post-dot-com bubble drop in the economy, uh, which shook a lot of these Potemkin companies that had emerged out of the deregulatory fervor of the 70s and 80s and 90s, the last goddamn 30 fucking years, <laughs> uh, would maybe have brought a reckoning among the American electorate with what exactly deal had been struck, uh, what, where democracy lay, uh, and a realization that, holy shit, maybe these people don't work for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead, uh, Enron goes to the back pages and is just absorbed. And then, of course, I think that the thing that would have pushed against that uh, and that would have maybe helped Trump, helped Bush get reelected, even in that context, is that if you still have the housing bubble mm-hmm. start exploding when it did, you would have had him going into reelection uh, with a comfortable economic argument which is usually all you need in a presidential election. And it was really only the 9-11 context that made foreign policy so central. And that, that was because people could take domestic politics sort of for granted because they were on firm footing. The economy was growing very quickly. But that context would have existed no matter what. But maybe that changes what happens when that finally conks out, which was going to mm-hmm. happen, of course, uh, I think the same time no matter what. But that... Economically focused Bush administration is not what we get because 
In September 2001, Bush did 9-11. <laughs> not, not really. I'm not really saying that, you know, and, unless. No, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. We're not, we're not, we're not advocating anything of that, uh, you know, but if you want to do some research about it, I think there's some very interesting, um, you know, well, let's not get into that. The fact is that on the morning of September 11th, 2001, two hijacked planes were flown into the two towers of the World Trade Center, leading to their collapse. Another hijacked plane was crashed into the Pentagon, and a fourth was brought down into a field in Pennsylvania. A total of 2,996 deaths are attributed to the attacks that day, and many more deaths have been attributed to illnesses caused by debris and toxins released by the attacks. Like the Kennedy assassination, there are almost endless different facets of the causes, effects, and actual events of the attack it's possible to discuss. But for the purposes of this show... We just have to say that it happened and look at the political effect. Unless, of course, Matt wants to get into it further. So, yeah, we're not going to spend a lot of time making an argument about exactly how 9-11 came to be. We're going to sort of take it for granted Mm -hmm. that this is the defining event of this entire era of politics Mm -hmm. that we're still dealing with. But just to set the stage for what 9-11 sort of symbolizes in, in, in the arc of America's empire after World War II is that... The 90s had been a, a sort of a unstable era for America's imperial managers. Now, the Persian Gulf War had been a good, spectacular bit of theater that had exercised the ghost of Vietnam, and they pushed calls for the Coast War peace dividend out of the media for a few years. Mm-hmm. But the Clinton er- years had been rudderless. Absent an existential threat like the Soviets, the only real raison d'etre for continuing military spending were a series of police actions at the periphery of empire. There was nothing that American people were terribly excited about and, crucially, nothing that really justified the U.S. position as unquestioned global hegemon. Mm -hmm. The fall of the Soviet Union may have temporarily halted the slide away from U.S. domination of the world economy, but the drift towards multipolarity that Nixon first attempted to address in the 70s was irreversible. America's political power had been a necessary to secure capitalism access to the developing world post-World War II. But in a post-Cold War world where every major economy, including the potential behemoth of China, are adopting neoliberalism, American preeminence is no longer guaranteed. Now, that's an unacceptable scenario for people who have long grown accustomed to unaccountable power within America's domestic political institutions. Mm Mm-hmm. Power that is predicated on being able to assure the American people a degree of consumer comfort that comes with being the last stop in the global supply chain. A world balance of power that better reflects the fact that the U.S. makes up 5% of the world's population is not one where power would be guaranteed to stay where it currently resides. But what if there was a way to reverse that slide? What if the U.S. switched from its position as an empire of influence, backing up the transactions of its world reserve currency with a massive but mostly idle military, into a more formal, uh, geographically defined military empire, invading and occupying territory as it saw fit to stabilize and advance its influence relative to the rising power of its rivals? Imperial hubris, perhaps, but understandable when viewed from the point of view of planners. They had just watched the American Goliath spend its Soviet rival into the grave and loot the corpse. They had seen challenges to American power, domestic and international, subverted and neutralized. Why couldn't the U.S. direct their monstrous military spending to the end of dictating terms rather than accepting a gradual slide into irrelevance? What was lacking was a public pretext 
to adhere a distracted, restless American public to a drastically new global posture and project. What some of those planners had called a new Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. Now, all we can say for sure is that through some combination of blowback from previous clandestine projects, the incompetence of intelligence agencies more concerned with protecting their budgets in an era of austerity than cooperating with each other, and the chilling reality that the most fateful decisions of statecraft have been so abstracted from democratic accountability and that the people making those decisions are so abstracted from anything like conventional morality and that all of their incentives and the incentives of the office that they fill gravitates them towards putting the national security interests of their imagined American military and imperial project above any petty moral consideration. <laughs> they got what they want. They got 9-11. Santa showed up and put Flight 93 down the chimney. <laughs> the attacks were attributed to Al-Qaeda, a multinational group of militant Islamists founded and led by Osama bin Laden. Oh, there's that bin Laden name again. A former Saudi citizen now operating out of Afghanistan. On September 14th, Congress passed the Authorization for Use of Military Force, which Bush signed September 18th, one week after the attacks. The AUMF authorized the president to use military force against the terrorist groups behind September 11th. The act has since been interpreted broadly, and the full list of groups, organizations, and actors currently being fought under the AUMF is classified. Bush then ordered the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan on October 7th, 2001. The stated goal of the invasion was to dismantle al-Qaeda and overthrow Afghanistan's ruling Taliban government that had been harboring it. In his State of the Union address in 2002, Bush put forth what is now known as the Bush Doctrine, that America could and would pursue preemptive military strikes against nations said to be harboring terrorist organizations. This is the axis of evil speech, listing Iraq, Iran, and North Korea as threats to world peace for supposedly aiding terrorist organizations and pursuing weapons of mass destruction. North Korea is a regime arming with missiles and weapons of mass destruction. Iran aggressively pursues these weapons and exports terror. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons for over a decade. This is a regime that has already used poison gas to murder thousands of its own citizens. This is a regime that agreed to international inspections, then kicked out the inspectors. This is a regime that has something to hide from the civilized world. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. They could provide these arms to terrorists, giving them the means to match their hatred. They could attack our allies or attempt to blackmail the United States. In any of these cases, the price of indifference would be catastrophic. Neoconservatives within the Bush administration had been advocating for overthrowing Saddam Hussein since Bush's father's administration, and the drums for war began to beat louder for action against Iraq. So the entire U.S. elite, the political class and the entirety of the media class and capitalists, everybody, was <laughs> either out of self-interest because it was going to help their bottom line or genuine uh, erotic enthrallment to the event uh, or in most cases both <laughs> were 
absolutely screaming for any amount of revenge for 9-11. They gave the Bush administration and the Republican Party and neoconservatives a blank check to do whatever they wanted. And uh, that meant that the invasion of Afghanistan at that point is a given because putting a flag somewhere is has to be the outcome of this uh, to start the, the project off. Uh, and that means that it didn't matter that the Taliban had offered to arrest bin Laden to avoid an invasion or that after the initial invasion, they had offered to surrender power to a transitional government and to prevent an insurgency. Uh, Afghanistan had to be defeated. It had to be occupied. It had to be dominated. But that wasn't enough. And that's not just because, as uh, Rumsfeld said, there were no good targets in Afghanistan. <laughs> it's because while Afghanistan is a crucial region for natural gas shipments and opium production, which are two commodities crucial to the maintenance of American empire, there's one thing that they didn't have, and that's oil. Now, ever since the replacement of the gold-backed dollar by the petrodollar and the oil shocks of the 70s, the U.S. have been seeking a way to maintain and extend influence over the governments of oil-rich Middle East. Now, and that meant mostly partnering with the House of Saud to undermine secular Arab nationalist movements in favor of radical Islamism, arming both sides of the Iraq war and invading Iraq in 1991. 9-11 is what opened an opportunity to assert American military force as the determiner of the balance of power in the Middle East, which would maintain U.S. predominance in a globalized capitalist system. Inside the Bush administration, there was a general assumption that the maverick regime of Saddam Hussein would only be the first domino to fall, and that within a decade, U.S. armed forces would have made, remade the landscape of Middle Eastern governance, as well as assured a new logic of permanent war economy. This is not predetermined by the demands of capital. This is a project of a specific group of ideologically motivated policy planners within the Republican Party. Now, it's difficult to imagine like Al Gore going forward with such an expensive, frankly, deluded vision. But 9-11 would have assured some sort of expansionary military posture, if only to keep the Pentagon-based economic order going. And that meant that for the neoconservatives in the position to direct public rage somewhere, the only place to put it was the most vulnerable point in the world supply chain vis-a-vis -vis American power. The Middle East, is, is, it's so crucial and yet it's so far away. <laughs> uh, and this was an attempt to essentially bring America to the Middle East in the form of a permanent military occupation that would be basically modeled after post-war Europe, where our occupation forces would be in uh, there basically at the uh, request of loyal governments that we had installed. Mm -hmm. And that would mean that anybody coming up in the new global order who wanted some fucking oil was going to have to... Uh, negotiate on America's terms and that America power would American power would be finally and fixedly determinative of the flow of uh, global capital. And that was that was an insane bit of overreach, but it was overreach born of experience. These guys had only seen America succeed. They thought, what is the point of having this thing if we're not going to fucking put it into the <laughs> highest possible gear before we surrender our flags to an enemy? Why don't we? See how fast this fucking baby can go. Maybe we can actually do this. And they thought they could. Get it out on the road, open it up, and see if we can turn Iraq into Germany. What's this button do? Yes. Bush and his administration forcefully made the case to both Congress and the UN that Iraq was pursuing weapons of mass destruction, despite UN weapons inspectors being unable to find any evidence of a WMD program. Congress authorized use of force against Iraq in October 2002, and on March 20th, 2003, Operation Iraqi Freedom began with a campaign of shock and awe 
a display of overwhelming force through massive airstrikes. Coalition forces move in, and within three weeks, Baghdad falls to the U.S., and Bush declares an end to major combat operations under a giant mission-accomplished banner aboard the USS Abraham Lincoln. And that was the end of that. Well, of course, we'd have to keep a, a small, tiny little occupation going. And hey, hey, there may be some insurgency down the line, but we'll, we'll deal with that if it comes. I'm sure all the hard work is over for now. <clears throat> Matt, before we go on to the election of 2004, do you want to do a quick look at Bush's domestic situation? So uh, after the Great Reset of the late 70s, the American economy uh, did not fundamentally change in that it is maintained its status as a permanent war mil- economy premised on massive military spending. That uh, did not change. What changed is what was the structure of domestic economy that was built on top of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout the 70s, it had been domestic manufacturing. Uh, and in the uh, starting with the 80s, as, that, as manufacturing was hollowed out and that uh, engine of uh, – that engine of demand among the middle and uh, working class was cut off. Uh, the the position in the economy was replaced by a series of asset spec of speculative asset bubbles mm-hmm. that power that have powered the economy ever since, <clears throat> and they have persistently been around real estate speculation. America's economy, you could say, has always been a series of massive military spe- uh, spe- expenditures followed by speculative asset bubbles in the real estate in, uh, market. It's free real estate. Yeah, the real estate's not free anymore, but speculating in it, hey, if you've got a little money... Exactly. It's like if the prices are going to keep going up, you can make money investing in it and trading it, and so it doesn't really matter that there isn't any more. Mm-hmm. But throughout, so throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s, the deindustrialization is accelerating, wages are stagnating, the thing that keeps the economy going is regional real estate booms, propelling acti- uh, economic activity across the country. Uh, I mean, the, even the dot-com bubble, you could say, is just an, a result of military spending and uh, the defense industry spending creating the goddamn internet in the first place, just like it was the government that laid the goddamn railroad after the Civil War. All you have without that is fucking real estate. Mm-hmm. The, co- the coke money laundering condos of Miami, defense and extraction-fueled Sunbelt suburbs. Now, after the dot-com bubble burst in the late 90s, 9-11 comes and rattles consumer confidence. A new nationalized, fully deregulated housing market emerges as the American engine that creates domestic consumer purchasing power. Uh, and by 2004, it was humming along at a rate that we could afford to have a foreign policy dominated presidential election. So then even by 2004, Bush's approval rating, which had climbed as high as 90% immediately after 9-11, had slumped back down to around 50. 2004 was unusually focused on foreign policy, as Matt just said, and the election was seen as a referendum on the execution and handling of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Bush faces no opposition from Republicans in securing the renomination. For the Democrats, Vermont Governor Howard Dean was seen as an early frontrunner. Though governing Vermont as a fiscal conservative, Dean pioneered the use of the internet to directly appeal to grassroots supporters for fundraising as an anti-war left populist. But despite dominating early polls, after unexpectedly coming in third in the Iowa caucuses behind Massachusetts Senator John Kerry and North Carolina Senator John Edwards, and of course an unfortunate audio clip of him appearing irrationally exuberant in front of supporters. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! 
Dean plummeted in the polls and Kerry dominated future primaries, receiving the nomination. Yeah, uh, the Democrats were in pretty hardcore disarray after 9-11. They absolutely struggled to form any coherent response to the Bush administration because of how terrified they were of offending public opinion uh, around the war on terror, which, of course, had been manufactured from the top up. But uh, they had no interest in upsetting that because they subscribed to the logic of the war on terror, too. But they just did not have a very good way of doing the politics around it because they could only ever say, no, we actually do love America. We don't love terrorists. We just we're, we're we like troops. Uh, we love troops. Uh, we love them so much. We don't want them to die. Having to do that sort of jujitsu like mm-hmm. that mindset is created here as just some way to deal with this situation of not being able to challenge your opponent on anything. And uh, uh, Howard Dean is a very interesting phenomenon in that you could see, you can kind of see it as like the Democratic uh, base sort of coming to terms with mm-hmm. their cowardice, basically, uh, <laughs> the, the way that they all knew at the end of the day they were going to give in and go for uh, somebody who supported the war. It was a troop or whatever uh, because they were so terrified of losing to Bush. Uh, but for a, a while there, they really wanted to support this guy, this mm-hmm. uh, this guy who said, hey, maybe we shouldn't have gone to war in the first place. <laughs> hey, wow. Who'd have thunk? Maybe we should have actually had some fucking principles. Uh, but <laughs> by the time it got to vote, they all spooked themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, into supporting the troop, the the former v- the Vietnam Purple Heart winner uh, who had come home to denounce the war, the senator from Massachusetts, John Kerry, they'll never be able to say he's unpatriotic. Mm-hmm. They'll they'll be there'll be no way they can spin him as someone who hates freedom. <laughs> and so that base curdles in on itself, puts up Kerry, who offers a totally incoherent critique of Bush. That's all about <laughs> how. He should have done the war, but not the way he did it. Uh, he could not make a real coherent case because he'd voted for it. Yes. And what's really interesting is that in 1991, John Kerry voted against the Persian Gulf War. That's because at that point, he still thought there was enough lead in the pencil of mm-hmm. domus- domestic <laughs> progressive foreign policy uh, beliefs that resisting this po- post-Cold War sort of American uh, power overreach is legitimate. Mm-hmm. By 2001, after 9-11... No, sir. Yes. You got to vote for it. Uh, and so he had no critique of Bush. Uh, and then Bush was really also helped. The other thing that really helped him overcome what otherwise might have been some skepticism to a war effort that really had gone poorly and that had been based on a lie. Somebody mm-hmm. had to have lied because there weren't any goddamn weapons of mass destruction. And there was an insurgency. Yes. Uh, and there was uh, all the stuff that they had said there wasn't going to be. So there was this countercurrent. But one of the things that pushed against it was the fact that by 2004, you have the first coalescing into a coherent cultural identity that is opposed to uh, the mainstream of culture that has come out of the 60s cultural revolution. Uh, And this is the evangelical, Protestant, suburban, white base Mm -hmm. that is committed to Bush, not because of any specific policy, but because of his, his signal point, his embodiment of a position in a culture war Mm -hmm. uh and this is going to of course end up consuming both parties uh but this is really the first big manifestation of it and it really is a result of 9-11 it's 9-11 created a politics of apocalypse and a politics of apocalyptic confrontation with an enemy and the evangelicals found it first in the other the 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 terrorist who is Mm -hmm. being aided at home by the traitor uh and all we have seen in the politics since 
2004 is that as the crisis domestically has increased and as the war on terror failed, the, the, the effort to become an imperial hegemon failed, America's frontier finally closed once and for all, that accusing finger turns inward and the traitor becomes the focus of politics. So Kerry accepts the nomination and tries to play up his military experience. I'm John Kerry and I'm reporting for duty. John Kerry reporting for duty. Cringiest thing to ever happen. Matt, I know that you have a personal memory of watching John Kerry report for duty. I do. At that point, I was one of these people who had been so consumed by the spectacle of politics after 9-11. The drama. My God, how could I turn my eyes away from the television after having seen something like that? So I had to invest politics and caring about politics with a tight apocalyptic emotional intensity. Uh, and it, I had to organize it around getting Bush out of office, which meant supporting Howard Dean and then watching him fail and having to reluctantly get behind Kerry, who I had denigrated all during the campaign as a wishy-washy bitch, and then having <laughs> to invest myself in him and having to squint at him and see someone worth supporting. And then he shows up on the screen and gives us a little salute and says, I'm John Kerry and I'm reporting for duty. And I just felt my heart sink. And uh, then I, I spent a lot of time trying to delude myself that he'd win. But that's when, like, the door of darkness opened because I, I, I really was – I really did think there was no way Bush could get reelected after what he had done. But it turns out you have to have been damaged by 9-11 in a very specific way to know what he had done. Everybody <laughs> else is just doing their job, going through life, and maybe watching their fucking uh, house appreciate and value so much that they can fucking refinance. And maybe they could buy a second house. I, for my part, uh, carried a John Kerry pin on my backpack well into 2007 as some kind of flaccid display of, uh, no, I am not. I am against Bush, sir. I'm still holding out for the, the hero who was promised. At the convention, a relatively unknown state senator from Illinois named Barack Obama gives the keynote address at the convention. And the Democrats go confidently forth to get flip-flopped and swift-boated into defeat in a fairly close election. Bush won 50.7% of the popular vote and 286 electors to Kerry's 48.3% of the popular vote and 251 electors. This would be the only time between 1988 and the current day a Republican candidate would win a majority of the popular vote. Love that Constitution, don't we, folks? We, we love, love it! Divinely inspired. <laughs> so Bush gets his second term, and we get to see the domestic side of neoconservatism. As he tries to take the final axe to the last crumbling vestiges of the New Deal and privatize Social Security. The Bush administration argued the Social Security program faced a severe funding crisis and offered a scheme for workers to divert their payroll taxes into privatized investment accounts. But as Bush tried to sell this idea, it only lost support and Republicans abandoned the plan early into Bush's second term. Matt, any thoughts on this? So Social Security reform is the domestic version of the Bush administration's uh, imperial overreach in Iraq. This is a, a manifestation of an attitude that we can do anything. We can remake the world militarily and we can f just break all political restraints domestically and cut the heart out of economics the, the guarantee of a safety net for american mm -hmm. citizens and it would have been ideal from the point of view of, of a deregulator to turn all that uh social security money over to wall street fuck political risks your god's on <laughs> earth go for it but that is where they found the limit of their ability to assert their will over the world, just like they did in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And it led to uh, the real decline of Bush. 
the Hurricane Katrina was really defining and destroying his popularity. But even before then, he had been really critically wounded by mm-hmm. the Social Security reform effort. Uh, another uh, moment where the barriers uh, of political possibility were hit uh, was on immigration, where uh, an, another no-brainer from the perspective of globalized deregulatory capital uh, is to normalize immigration to allow for cheap labor imports. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this one, though, is was shot down internally from a Republican base that, well, things are still going good, thumbers crossed, uh, are still operating in a post-material politics and therefore are adhering to a more and more culturally uh, – uh, vital political project that really cares about questions of identity Mm -hmm. uh, and which therefore sees immigration as a much more vital issue than a a business Republican like Bush would. And so that's where, oh, they found another limit to their ability to uh, get the people to do what they want the way they did after 9-11. On August 29th, 2005, the Category 3 storm Hurricane Katrina made landfall over Louisiana. The resulting catastrophic failure of the levees in New Orleans, built by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, resulted in flooding of 80% of the city and some of the surrounding parishes. The death toll from the storm and subsequent flooding would reach almost 1,500 people, while damages are estimated around $70 billion. For weeks afterwards, TV news was also flooded with images of submerged neighborhoods, desperate citizens seeking refuge in the Superdome, and chaotic response from disaster relief agencies and law enforcement. And good evening again from New Orleans tonight, a city underwater. The mayor here gave voice to what many had feared today, that thousands may be dead in these floodwaters. And tonight, officials at all levels of government are mobilizing to evacuate all 100,000 people still here. Bush's handling of what he had described as one of the worst national disasters in our nation's history was immediately seen as disastrous and his already declining approval sharply dropped. Yeah, this was uh, is considered in public memory the thing that killed the Bush administration. And what's so interesting is, is that there have been a half dozen or so Katrina-level disasters and disasters that were aided by an incompetent federal response uh, since then, but they, none of them have, re- have, uh, have had the impact of Katrina because it really was the first. It was the first mm-hmm. time that we saw a massive natural disaster re- met with uh, a failed uh, federal response. There had been obviously previous hurricanes and disasters, but there was always a sense that they were addressed competently. This mm-hmm. really brought, this is one of those events that does massive damage to the legitimacy of these institutions. And is what leads the politics over time to become more and more unhinged because we are more and more being confronted, starting with Katrina, with the manifest incompetence of this state that we have uh, put so much faith in and which is becoming incapable of delivering on promises. By 2007, years of deregulation had led to an unstable housing bubble buoyed by subprime mortgages in the housing sector financialized as derivatives and credit default swaps. The bubble burst accelerates over the next year, culminating in the collapse of the Lehman Brothers Investment Bank on September 15th, 2008, triggering a good old-fashioned 19th century throwback banking crisis. Matt, I know this is all explained by, like, Margot Robbie in a bathtub in the big short, but what's going on here? 
so by this point, uh, as as Christ as uh, prices of profitability grips capitalism globally, uh, increasingly the only place that you can put money and guarantee that they're going to have more of it in a little bit is um, uh, is real estate and specifically American real estate because the American consumer economy is the engine of the global economy and therefore mm-hmm. the most stable economy in the world because if it if it really shuts down so does everybody else's uh so that means that there's a, a stable investment uh and what that means for regular americans who had gotten lucky uh in the sweepstakes for property post world war ii means that american homeowners like those could get in on the action by refinancing their homes by buying multiple houses and flipping them they were able to access credit that made up for their lack of what rising wages the fact and it allowed them to spend at a degree of comfort that uh, was that masked the the uh, their gradual decline uh, in the marketplace. And deregulation of the industry meant that the loans were available for the asking, with no real requirements uh, to be able to pay them back. Because why would anyone ever call in uh, anything? This is this is how things are now. It was a classic speculative bubble. Uh, and crucially, though, when the dominoes start falling. Uh, when the first wave of homeowners start defaulting on their loans, the government, following orthodox understanding of how political economy runs, refused to intervene. And Mm -hmm. that was the real uh, moment when the thing seized up. That was Jenga, when the Mm -hmm. government failed to intervene. Well, let's get into what the intervention looked like when it came. As the severity of the collapse became clear, the Bush administration grasped for a response. Congress eventually passed an Economic Stimulus Act, offering a modest tax rebate and tax incentives to spur business spending. As Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae collapse, and Matt, tell me if I'm wrong here, but these are two corporations which, to the best of my description, function a bit like the 19th century Bank of the United States, publicly chartered by Congress but privately owned and managed, uh, and these two specifically designed to ease investment in mortgages. In September, the Federal Housing Finance Agency put these two massive corporations under conservatorship. In March, the Federal Reserve agreed to assist J.P. Morgan to buy out failing investment bank Bear Stearns, then bailed out finance and insurance corporation AIG to the tune of $180 billion. On the eve of the 2008 election, the Bush administration pushed through the Trouble Asset Relief Program, allowing the federal government to purchase toxic assets in the financial sector, originally authorized for $700 billion. So that's the ticky-tacky of the response. But Matt, what does it all mean? Uh, It was a coordinated effort to recapitalize this economy that had seen this massive uh, instantaneous uh, erasure of wealth by giving that wealth back to the lenders rather than the people who had owned the homes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And every element of the response flows from that agenda. And that is a bipartisan agenda that is signed off on by uh, both uh, in the House and Senate uh, in the waning days of the Bush years of the Bush uh, administration and then in the early days of Obama and both presidents, there is an understanding that this is the only alternative, that the economy cannot be allowed to collapse and that the only plausible way to get the economy moving again is to give it to the people who uh, are in charge, basically, of distributing it and not giving it to uh, actual Americans uh, who could have avoided things like mass eviction Mm -hmm. 
uh, in foreclosure that ended up doing permanent damage to the American social fabric. And this is not something that's up for election, even though an election is happening during this. There is no (laughs) choice on the ballot that is not give it to the bankers, not to the homeowners. So in the weeks after 9-11, George W. Bush had held the highest approval ratings on record, peaking at 92% by ABC News and Gallup polls. By summer 2008, he had collapsed to record low approvals, a limp 22% by Gallup. The wars that had been the cornerstone of his first term sagged on into their fifth and seventh years, now lacking discernible victory conditions or even clear objectives, and had transitioned from patriotic vengeance to another disgusting military boondoggle. The economic boon of the go-go 90s had evaporated into the most cataclysmic recession since uh, the Great One. He had let a city drown under his watch, and now everyone knew... George Bush doesn't care about black people. Bushism was fucked. Yeah, so it turns out that uh, you can't just become the new Charlemagne (laughs) just because you can fly an airplane. The Bush administration was this uh, two-term example of hubris and nemesis, Mm -hmm. uh, of of, uh, four years spent sowing and four years spent reaping. Uh, And it did mean that at that point, the Republican project at large was largely discredited. Mm -hmm. uh, And people were really willing to... uh, open themselves up to an alternative to it that that could have uh, presented uh, a different way to approach the world and to approach domestic policy. Uh, but um, that's not really what we got. So as Bush slinks back to his Texas ranch to do oil paintings of the soldiers his wars had maimed, we turn to the election of 2008, a new crisis in search of new leadership. And hey, remember that uh, charismatic young man who introduced John Kerry? Barack Hussein Obama II was born on August 4th, 1961 in Honolulu, Hawaii. His mother, Stanley Ann, hailed from Wichita and was studying anthropology at the University of Hawaii. His father, Barack Obama Sr., was born in Kenya and was attending University of Hawaii on a government-sponsored program. The two were married in early 1961, but divorced in 1964 as Barack Sr. headed to Harvard to study economics, and then remarried an Indonesian geographer named Lolo Sotero, and the family moved to Indonesia, then returned to Hawaii, where young Barack continued his high school education even as his mother traveled back to Indonesia. Barack graduated high school in 1979 and headed to Los Angeles, attending Occidental College on a scholarship. As a junior, he transferred to Columbia University and graduated with a bachelor's in political science in 1983. In 1985, he moved to Chicago and worked as director of the Developing Communities Project, a faith-based nonprofit providing programs like job training, fighting for tenants' rights, and other community organizing initiatives. In 1988, he enrolled in Harvard Law, returning to Chicago for a summer associate program at a local law firm in 1989. His supervisor was a young woman named Michelle Robinson, and the two eventually began dating. 
After graduating with a JD in 1991, Barack returned to Chicago to teach at University of Chicago Law School, eventually teaching constitutional law there for over a decade while also leading voter registration projects and sometimes working as an associate at a law firm focusing on civil rights. In 1996, Barack Obama won election to his state Senate seat in a very uh, Chicago-style election in which his campaign filed objections to all three of his opponents' nominating petitions, and they were all found to have irregularities causing them to to fall short of the minimum requirements. So in his first election, Obama ran unopposed in the primaries and won the elections with an enormous margin. He was reelected to state Senate in 1998 and again in 2002 due to Illinois' weird two-year-than-four-year state Senate term rule. Illinois politics, man. In 2000, he ran for a congressional seat and was badly beaten. Bobby Rush! <laughs> the, the one man to Albert... Uh, elbow drop a barf sacco crumbo <laughs> he won barely over 30 percent of the vote in that race in state senate obama built a reputation as pragmatic and shrewd one colleague described his attitude as quote okay that makes sense and sounds great uh, as i'd like to go to the moon but right now i've only got gas to go this far he worked on campaign finance reform better racial profiling laws tax credits for the working poor and increasing child care subsidies in 2003, Obama announced his candidacy for U.S. Senate, laying groundwork speaking out against the Iraq war in late 2002. With an open field, Obama takes the nomination easily. After being nominated, this is when he gives that 2004 convention speech, then wins the seat in a landslide, the largest margin for a senator in Illinois history. So when uh, Barfsack was running for that Senate seat, his original op opponent was a very popular uh, Illinois Republican named uh, named Jack Ryan, like the guy <laughs> from uh, T Tom Clancy. Yeah. Uh, so Jack Ryan was was an up and coming Republican. Paul and he was married to Jerry Ryan from Deep Snace uh, Nine, uh, mm -hmm. seven, uh, seven of nine. Right. She was seven of nine. Yes. Uh, well, she was divorcing him at the time, and the, uh, while the campaign was happening, there was a uh, very splashy tabloid story about. Him coercing her into going to sex clubs in Paris and being mm. a swinger that she wasn't into it. Uh, and because of that, he withdrew from the race and they ended up having to put up uh, ha um, they ended up putting having to put up Alan Keyes, mm -hmm. uh, a uh, black Republican crank uh, who didn't even live in Illinois and had to carpet bag in to run and, and was a complete maniac. Uh, so. It could have been much harder for uh, Obama to coast and do things like hang out at the convention uh, if he'd had a harder race. And maybe we can thank Seven of Nine for that. Resistance is futile. Obama was a freshman senator. Obama was a freshman senator. Obama was a freshman senator, so he sponsored a lot of bills, transparency bills, arms reduction bills, immigration reform, sanctions on Iran, etc. But basically nothing got passed, which is par for the course for a freshman senator. Uh, so that's his Senate career. Uh, but on February 10th, 2007, Barack Obama declared his candidacy for president. He made his announcement on the same spot in Springfield, Illinois, where Abraham Lincoln had given his house-divided speech 149 years earlier. So that's the bio. Matt, your thoughts on Barack Obama, the guy. Barack Obama is a um, T-1000 of narcissism. Uh, this was a guy who was very, very ambitious from a young age and had his eyes opened while growing up at the decline of America. He was there to witness the, the American experiment be broken on the wheel uh, in the 70s. Uh, he hell, he fucking lived in the in a Cold War charnel house as a child in Indonesia. He saw 
uh, who was winning in the battle between capitalism and humanity and had long accommodated himself to the inevitability and of preferability and of markets uh, and that the only real question uh, was competence of management uh, and that there is no real power in democratic offices. Democratic offices are there to inspire people to behave a certain way. Mm-hmm. They're there as examples and, and as um, opos- op- objects of contemplation. They, they, can't, they don't really have power. And so for Obama, the act of him pursuing the office is what gave the office power, that he would be in it, mm-hmm. and that he would illuminate others with his presence. And that made him eventually conclude that the only way to redeem America was for the people to make him president of it, and that by him receiving the office, he will have redeemed them. So the election of 2008, we will start with the Republicans. As we covered above, Bush was a spent force, with no member of the disgraced Bush administration seeking nomination, and open Republican primaries saw former maverick, now war establishment man, John McCain, contesting with America's mayor, the popular mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani, in early primaries. But Rudy's star quickly faded, and other goons like Christian conservative Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee and Mormon businessman and Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney emerged as early contenders. But after Total Recall star and then-current Governor of California Arnold Schwarzenegger endorsed McCain and gave the state's primary to him, McCain won other Super Tuesday victories and soon became the primary's favorite. I mostly bring this up to remind folks that Rudy and Arnold were very recently decisive presences in national Republican politics. So then let's move on to the Democrats. The primary race turns between Hillary Clinton, senator from New York and wife of former President Bill Clinton, and now nationally prominent Barack Obama. Though Clinton seemed to be the frontrunner, Obama wins an upset victory in Iowa. He then draws her to a delegate tie in New Hampshire, and then from there, the race is on. The primary campaign between Hillary and Barack is an intense slugfest, without a clear winner emerging until late into the race. Matt, do you want to discuss the Hillary-Barack primary and then the 2008 general election in uh, general? So Obama represents this, the new, new base of the Democratic Party post-Iraq war, post-9-11. These are young people who are deeply attached to social liberalism as a signal of their personal virtue, educated professional class meritocrats who see in Obama the fulfillment of the promise of American meritocracy, and black Americans who were loyal to the Democratic Party thanks to historical uh, reasons and uh, who had, frankly, a lack of options uh, but uh, for other parties and were often uh, overlooked in national politics. Now, given a chance uh, to have one of their own achieve the highest office in the land. And it was uh, Obama's anti-war sentiment, really, even more than his charisma and his position as a this a trailblazing candidate who uh, gave people uh, a, a rallying cry and a uh, organizing principle uh, to to prefer him, like uh, the start of an argument for why Obama over uh, Clinton, why why Obama over continuing the Clinton dynasty, uh, and he was able to keep all of the power wielders of the Democratic Party very happy, and that is the key to his success. Is that at every point uh, he was embraced by the party establishment, who saw the benefit of having this young charismatic guy who didn't have the baggage of the Clinton years around him uh, and who could be trusted to do what they all agreed had to be done. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was able to ride that 
that youth wave, that desire to uh, have something new after seeing the Democratic Party provide such weak and limpid response to the Republican eight-year nightmare that they'd all lived through. Uh, he was there to help them turn the page and truly like reconsecrate America. Uh, among the Republicans, McCain is a remnant of the old Republican system, which is last loser gets the nomination. Uh, <laughs> if you lost last time, if you finished first runner up, uh, don't worry, hit the showers. You'll be back when it's when the slot opens again. <laughs> but his but that left him with a deficit among the party's base, the people who had, for example, rejected. They had embraced the war on terror fervently, but they had rejected things like immigration reform uh, and who were not necessarily interested in a uh, maverick who voted with Democrats. And to solidify that flank and make sure that those people came out for him, uh, the, they were eventually forced to nominate Sarah Palin as someone who could appeal to those culture first voters uh, mm-hmm. who made up such a significant portion of the GOP electorate. Uh, and she had to come at this point, really, because uh, no one within the Bush administration was untainted enough at that point. It had to be someone fresh and new and somebody who was even more culturally fixated than uh, the Bushes had been. Uh, but at, it becomes a it gets it gets him support among these evangelicals, but it costs him support in other regions, because at this point, the hegemonic media narratives are still largely invested with some degree of uh, legitimacy. People believe what they hear in the news. They believe what the newspapers tell them, even if they might have partisan disagreements uh, and they might have some parts of the media that they are alienated by. They accept the basic premise of media narratives uh, because they haven't been totally undermined yet. Uh, And, and that media narrative was that Palin couldn't do the job. Palin was inexperienced and stupid and her answers to questions were embarrassing. And so everyone was embarrassed for her. Uh, but that calculus is going to change drastically as conditions in America deteriorate. And so on Tuesday, November 4th, 2008, a record number of votes were cast and Barack Obama, the son of an African college student, the community organizer from Chicago, the constitutional law professor at University of Chicago, is elected president by a commanding margin. He wins 365 electoral votes to McCain's 173 and almost 53% of the popular vote, becoming the first black man ever to hold the nation's highest office. Let's see that hope and change, baby. Gotta get dip. Gotta get dip. Gotta get dip. Gotta get dip, dip, dip. Barack Obama was inaugurated on January 20th, 2009. Obama and congressional Democrats immediately set to work passing the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, a massive stimulus of over $780 billion in spending on infrastructure, health services, renewable energy, tax incentives and credits for individuals and corporations, and expanding welfare. Though Democrats hoped for a bipartisan agreement on the recovery plan, the bill was passed with almost no Republican support, an early indication of the intense partisan opposition that would characterize Obama's presidency. So let me just get through a few hits on the Obama era, and then you can go off on the thing as a whole, Matt. I'm passing this as a package to you. Healthcare reform was one of Obama's top priorities. After being drafted by a bipartisan Senate committee and revised in the House and the Senate through intense negotiation and compromise, the final version of the Affordable Care Act was passed on essentially party-line vote and signed into law March 2010. 
The bill was one of the most expansive social programs in decades, expanding Medicaid, establishing an individual mandate for obtaining health insurance, creating health insurance exchanges within the states, and creating a ban on denying coverage based on pre-existing conditions. The bill would affect the most significant drop in the percentage of uninsured Americans since the creation of Medicare and Medicaid. It was immediately the target of intense criticism and attempts to repeal from Republicans. Obama also presided over some of the most significant regulatory reforms in the financial sector since the New Deal, with the passage of the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010. The act increased oversight on derivatives trading, expanded regulatory powers of the Federal Reserve, and creating new organizations for financial stability and monitoring, like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The act failed, however, to break up large banks or fully reinstate Glass-Steagall, goals pushed by many liberals. There's a lot more here. The extension of the Bush-era tax cuts bailing out the automotive industry, as well as some achievements on the social front, like important expansions of LGBT rights and instituting the DACA policy to protect certain classes of undocumented immigrants, even while presiding over record-high deportations. All of this against near-unified Republican opposition. So that's kind of the broad strokes of Obama's domestic accomplishments, but Matt, do you want to tell me the real story of the Obama years? So it's often said that Obama squandered uh, the possibility of the post-2008 election mo- uh, moment when the faith in the Republican agenda and honestly in capitalism in general was being uh, seriously undermined. Uh, and when he campaigned on a genuine change uh, in the basic deal, he promised a new deal without getting uh, specific in any real way. Uh, but that was because he had no intention of doing anything other than uh, asserting the next phase, basically, of uh, the uh, post-industrial American economic destiny, which is the full liquefaction and the full proletarianization of the American middle and, lo- and, uh, middle and lower classes. Uh, the end of the post-war chuck wagon, as it were. Uh, the, the, the final thing that had avoided total proletarianization, uh, the final barrier, which had been mass homeownership, was now uh, finally and fatally being undermined. Uh, and he pursued that policy under the uh, guise of presenting a populist response. And this is another thing that massively undermines the faith and legitimacy people have in the political process of the Democratic Party, because this was a massive bait and switch. But mm-hmm. it was not because Obama lacked the will to do what he should have done. It's because he had no desire to do that, because by 2008, the Democratic Party is not the industrial uh, patronage machine that had been in 1932 when its um, ranks were swollen with Ordinary dispossessed Americans outraged at capitalism and wanting some way to assert an alternative. By 2008, the Democratic Party is a professional networking organization for independent political operatives who don't operate as part of a machine, but as as independent contractors, all of them seeking individual advancement through the system. So they're going to select certain uh, politicians And the electorate is also different. We don't have an entire generation disillusioned with capitalism as practiced and seeking alternatives organized in a militant and effective labor movement. Instead, we are millions of consumers only Mm -hmm. able to articulate the horror of the economic collapse through the language of partisanized mass media. The only action that we can conceive of is to vote and the foreclosure of any other uh, any other avenue of action. Obama himself was instrumental in breaking up 
revolutionary funding and organizing machine that he had built in the 2008 campaign. All of this was in the service of foreclosing alternatives and to uh, creating a liberal democratic gloss on this new social contract. Uh, And the new vision is one of moral meritocracy. And so that has been the democratic mission ever since is to uh, assert that there can be no rescuing anyone from the maw of capitalism yet, but we can reward people based on their merit, but not Mm -hmm. just their academic merit, their moral merit. And that the goal of politics is to reward the morally meritorious. Uh, And that takes over for any remaining class character of the democratic project. And this is the, this era is the end of the class, uh, any class influence in the democratic structure. Uh, and it, in, in practice, all those things you listed are the recapitalization of the economy by destroying middle class wealth, massively redirecting wealth upward, and then ensuring it. And this is the most important part, ensuring that the next time there was a crisis in the American bubble based economy, there would be no delay in state intervention, mm-hmm. that there would be no big gasping shock like happened in 2007 and 2008 there would be an instant uh bailout basically in the form of free money from the federal reserve uh quantitative easing Mm -hmm. and that is the next abstraction uh, of control of the economy away from democratic hands uh and this time basically solely in the hands of capital capital in the form of the federal reserve gets to direct uh money upward which is then trickles down through economic uh through investment and economic activity that is in, instigated by this newly recapitalized uh capital class uh and everybody else has to deal with the decline of living conditions while trying to make sense of it in a uh, political sphere where the question cannot be raised mm-hmm. uh and obama becomes the lightning bolt for this trauma being laid out where those who are uh, horrified by the new precarity of the post-08 order and who see Obama as a cultural enemy and alien organize their politics against him and against the new cosmopolitan civic uh, uh, moral meritorious democracy that he, he, he stands for, uh, as at the same time, young people, people who have uh, absorbed cosmopolitan views in higher education, people who are minorities and therefore repelled by the white supremacy that undergirds a lot of the assumptions of the right, Mm -hmm. uh, you gravitate to Obama as an avatar for uh, a cultural identity that you wish to reflect and see reflected in your politics. And we have been living now in this shadow boxing after echo of the death of American democracy ever since. Uh, The one domestic agenda of the Obama administration that got any kind of that made any kind of real difference domestically was Obamacare, Mm -hmm. which was a thoroughly neoliberalized attempt to bend the curve, the long-term curve on cost uh, borne by the federal government to from, from health coverage by removing some degree of private profit from it, but on the terms of insurance industry, which meant that 
whatever long-term benefit it might have had, it had no political benefit and only alienated people from a system that cost them money to buy insurance that they could not use. The only meaningfully effective, positive part of Obamacare was the Medicaid expansion, which was not, after the Supreme Court ruled on it, was not implemented in many red states uh, and which was limited to uh, many fewer people than it had to have been. Uh, and Obama term, uh, Obama's term was evidence to everybody that no matter what your argument is in the cultural realm, all you're really going to get at the dinner table from Democrats is Obamacare. That is the model for democratic intervention in the economy on behalf of the people. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, the Democrats were getting absolutely creamed the entire time Obama mm-hmm. was president. Thousand over a thousand state legislature seats, uh, dozens of governorships, uh, and eventually both houses of Congress. And it is this wave receding very, very quickly because of the almost instantaneous disillusionment that set in that demobilized the Democratic electorate and energized as Obama just kept being a black president. The right. Oh. So then we're going to kind of breeze through the election of 2012, uh, basically only stopping here because, you know, I love these characters, you know? Obama enjoyed high personal popularity among Democrats and relatively good approval ratings as the economy at least stabilized. In a crowded Republican field, Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney emerged as the frontrunner. What's up, gangsters? It's the MI double tizzle. Uh, though he was intensely criticized as too moderate from the conservative wing of the party. The election centers around domestic policy and the economy, particularly Obama's handling of the recovery. And as I said, there's a lot of funny stuff here. The binders full of women, Matt. You remember the binders full of women? Mm-hmm. You didn't build that. Oh, how could he? You, I made my small business from the ground up, and he, Obama's telling me I didn't. <laughs> you, build you're that? saying I didn't. That was the that was the slogan of the 2012 Republican convention. Yeah, it was you didn't do that. We built that. Yes. Uh, Romney's leaked comment about the 47% of Americans being dependent on the teat of government and thus always in the hands of these giveaway Democrats. Remember Herman Cain and his smoking man ad ripped to a legend, Herman Cain. The memes are all coming back to me, you know, but in the end, Obama wins reelection with 332 electoral votes to Romney's 206 and 51% of the popular vote while Romney got ironically 47%. So this is the Republicans absolutely scrambling to figure out what to do uh, with this uh, Obama. Uh, and you see uh, in the Republican primary that Romney wins this fascinating uh, cycle where Romney was always the front runner. He was always number one in opinion polls because he represented the rump of Republican voters who were business first uh, types. These people were successful. They uh, looked to the Republicans to keep their taxes low, uh, and they didn't really care that much about the emotional pageantry of Mm -hmm. politics. And they were dead set on Romney because Romney was the embodiment of the uh, business ethos of the Republican Party. Deregulation, business, the culture stuff is really secondary for uh, Romney and for these guys and girls, gals. (laughs) And you see, though, because there is no uh, inheritor of Reagan yet, 
in this new cycle of uh, base mm-hmm. radicalization that has been happening since Taft. There is no no one's yet happened. So no one yet has uh, come together to uh, represent that tide within the Republican Party. The ones who were horribly outraged by the immigration uh, deal that Bush tried to make uh, and that were fully torqued on cultural issues. <laughs> and they cycled through Michelle Bachman, uh, Herman Cain for a little bit. Uh, Huckabee, Rick Santorum, who won the Iowa caucus in a squeaker. Mm-hmm. But none of them could be agreed upon because none of them were really uh, ready for prime time. They were all to one or another degree too dumb and uncharismatic to secure the moment. And so Romney is the default nominee. Uh, and amazingly, he picks for his VP, Paul Ryan, to double down on the <laughs> uh, fucking spreadsheet ass nature of the Republican Party. The the sheer green visored. Uh, miserliness of the Republican Party. And so in the aftermath of 2008, when people are still wildly suffering and the economy is doing better, so people are giving Obama credit for that, but certainly it could be doing a whole lot better than it was, Romney was unable to embody an alternative because he could critique Obama's running of the recovery, but his only alternative were things like let General uh, Motors go bankrupt instead of bailing out the auto industry, which definitely cost him his historical homeland of Michigan. Uh, and so all that the Republicans could do uh, is is make a sort of henpecked argument about Obama's fecklessness uh, that was did do some damage. Obama won many fewer votes and he lost a few states compared to 2008. Uh, but he was still clearly uh, the center of gravity was on his side uh, because the Republican Party had no at that point under Romney Ryan had no cultural case to make uh, other than the poor are uh, parasites, which is, you know, <laughs> it's supposed to be a little covered with other stuff. Yes. You need some tinsel around that motherfucker. Yeah. And I think that that's I mean, this is kind of a dynamic that we're going to see through the rest of this. The ping ponging back and forth, you know, just as Democrats were making the uh, in 2004, making the we support all these things. They're just doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And now the, it's the Republicans turn to say we support all these things, but they're just doing it wrong. Yeah. And they're doing not enough. Yeah. Even though the problem most people identified was is that Obama and the Democrats did too much. Mm-hmm. And for non-ideological Republicans, that was clearly not the case. Not enough yes. had been done. Uh, but Romney couldn't case them at couldn't make that case and couldn't make a cultural case. So Obama's back in for a second turn, and I'll take this moment to mention foreign policy developments. Obama notably ran highlighting his past anti-Iraq war positions, and by 2011, Obama presided over the drawdown and removal of basically all U.S. forces in Iraq. However, the U.S. would then redeploy over 5,000 troops there by 2017 to combat the rise of ISIL, an Islamic military group whose presence in the area grew rapidly after the U.S. withdrawal. Meanwhile, in Afghanistan, Obama surged the number of troops there, tripling U.S. presence to 100,000 troops by around 2012 before drawing forces down again while continuing to maintain a presence by the end of his presidency. Obama focused on minimizing military presence while maximizing efficacy, focusing on the use of special forces for operations and expanding targeted killings using the drone strike program. Drone strikes were able to assassinate high-profile terrorists, including the killing of U.S. citizen Anwar al-Awlaki in 2015, but often incurred civilian casualties. And finally, Obama authorized the surgical raid that finally killed Osama bin Laden 
in May 2011. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. So Obama was a break from the hubristic project of the Bush administration. He saw the failure in the Middle East to extend imperial power on the ground and decided to pull back out of prudent management, uh, cutting losses, and using, though, the framework of legal power of extra legal authority anywhere on the globe that Bush had established and asserted over the course of his term and using that to create a new shadow empire mm-hmm. that is uh, dominated by special forces, uh, drone technology, and requires minimal U.S. troop investment. The gamble there is that it will take the war on terror off the front pages mm-hmm. and allow it to be run with minimal political blowback. And for the most part, uh, Obama is correct about that. Even with the Obung- the Benghazi uh, uh, botch of that happened right before his, uh, right before the election, that was still not enough to uh, get people more focused on his foreign policy. It was largely a popular move. Uh, there was an effort within his administration to push him into more belligerence. Uh, with Libya, he uh, mm-hmm. acceded largely, I think, as a sop to NATO. Uh, the French were the real ones who were horning to get into Libya, uh, and we basically patted on the back and told him to have fun. <laughs> but he did resist the pull within the deep state, within the intelligence community, towards commitment in the Syria war. Uh, they, he was presented with that opportunity, and he made an executive decision to try to cut it off uh, because he was looking to reduce the U.S. footprint, but not, again, to draw down the war on terror, but to redirect the war towards the rising threat of China, which is why his foreign policy outside of the Middle East was dominated by the pivot to Asia, Mm -hmm. an attempt to reestablish formal military bonds with as many countries countries threatened by China as possible and to contain Chinese uh, economic and political expansionism. And this is still the greater project that the neocons initiated of trying to resist the slide of the U.S. into global irrelevance, but from a chastened position Mm -hmm. after the Iraq war. Domestically, things generally ground to a halt as Republicans wrested congressional control away from the near supermajorities Democrats had enjoyed in 2008. Starting with the conservative Tea Party revolution that took control of the House in 2010 and continuing when Republicans gained a whopping nine seats and took control of the Senate in 2014. Domestic momentum spins out into an interminable series of confrontations over budget and debt ceilings and government shutdowns. Ah, Matt, Obama's second term. So... Obama's second term, specifically after he loses the Senate in 2014, is the transition point when we go from the president as head of government and head of state to the president being essentially a constitutional monarch (laughs) in a government organized and controlled by Prime Minister Mitch McConnell. Mm -hmm. And this is all because of years of steady work by McConnell and state Republicans throughout the country to ensure a a disproportionate percentage of uh, electoral influence concentrates in rural white areas uh, and that the Republican Party is guaranteed a influence in government in disproportion to their actual numbers and that McConnell in the Senate, his contribution to this project is to throw the rule book out on Senate procedures 
and operate as though it were actually a power contest and not a game of manners. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that if you treat it as a game of power contest, you really can do basically anything you want. Mm -hmm. The only thing that really constrains you is fear of your opponent responding in kind. But McConnell, by this point, recognizes that the Democratic Party is constitutionally incapable of playing the kind of hardball that the Republicans can because of their existential commitment to the institution's legitimacy. Mm -hmm. They can't respond the way that McConnell responds, in part because it would invite demands among their constituents to actually do something, (laughs) which is against their interests. So in this context, McConnell is able to dictate everything from what the budget's going to look like uh, to domestic spending, uh, uh, domestic spending priorities mm-hmm. and especially and imp- most importantly, judicial appointments. McConnell is essentially bars Obama from filling hundreds of judicial seats with, of course, his crowning achievement being preventing Obama from filling Antonin Scalia's seat, even though he died over a year before Obama's election. Absolutely a masterclass. And Obama was essentially unable to respond because of that institutional commitment and also because motivating voters is contra to the entire project. You're, you're At this point, you're supposed to lean on your demographic advantage uh, and then do discrete turnout around Republican evil. Mm-hmm. You can't have an actual alternative. So by the end of the Obama administration, we're seeing this incredible polarization. The Democratic Party's agenda is both stalled and subsumed into the massive popularity of Obama among its voters. By the end of his term, Obama's average approval rating among Democrats was 83% and just 13% among Republicans. At the same time, Republicans have succeeded in energizing their base against him and gaining control of enough choke points to halt any agenda, but are lacking any consensus favorites from within the party establishment. The Republicans, they needed a star. And they were about to find out when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me. And I gladly Donald John Trump was born June 14th, 1946 in Queens, New York. His grandfather, Frederick Trump, was born in Bavaria in 1869 and in 1885 emigrated to New York City. Garnering funds as a barber in the Lower East Side, Frederick lit out to the Pacific Northwest where he built the family's initial wealth as a restaurant and tavern operator, profiting off the Yukon Gold Rush. After prohibition of alcohol, prostitutes, and easy liquor sales took his area, Frederick sold his shares and departed, leaving the operation to his drunken partner. Frederick returned to Bavaria to secure a wife and then was exiled back to New York for avoiding the Bavarian draft. In New York City, he continued barbering and acquired small amounts of property left to his son, Fred. He died of the global pandemics of Spanish flu in 1918. It's just very funny to me that Trump's grandpa was basically Al Swearingen. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump, used some of the family money to begin building homes in Queens. By the 1930s, with the aid of loans from the newly created Federal Housing Administration, Fred had a growing empire in New York City real estate and home building. 
building over 27,000 apartments and row houses throughout the city and amassing a fortune of $300 million by his death. Fred Trump was arrested at a Klan rally in 1927 and had a civil rights case filed against him in 1972 for discriminating against blacks in his apartment leasing. Donald Trump grew up in Queens and attended Fordham, then transferred to Wharton Business School, graduating in 1968. His father started involving him in the family business and gave Donald loans eventually totaling around $60 million to begin developing properties in Manhattan. Donald began with refurbishments to the Midtown Hotels and the Trump Tower development, which opened in 1983. Donald then branched into hotel casinos in Atlantic City. Through the 70s and 80s, Donald built a name for himself as a celebrity tycoon, actively according tabloid attention, continuously overstating his wealth, making cameo appearances in film and TV, and publishing The Art of the Deal to build his image as a business genius. His actual business dealings are a complex web of loans, debt, failed ventures, licensing deals, and bankruptcy. Donald was often bailed out by his father, especially during his early career, and including such shady moves as his father just purchasing $3.5 million in casino chips from one of Donald's failing casinos as a way to transfer money. If there is something Donald Trump is a genius at, it's making money off of failure. And despite many of his most notable ventures having dissolved or gone bankrupt by the early 2000s, Donald had still become a billionaire through various tax, loan, and debt schemes, as well as the continued influx of money from his father's wealth and estate. New York, my city, where the wheels of the global economy never stop turning. In 2004, Trump began one of his most overall successful ventures, becoming the host of The Apprentice, a reality TV competition show on NBC in which contestants would compete in business-related tasks for a chance to win a job in the Trump organization. This show and its later iteration, The Celebrity Apprentice, were an initial ratings hit and continued building Trump's pop culture presence for the 14 seasons he hosted between 2004 and 2014. Trump began discussing running for president as early as 1987 and was on the ballot in two primaries as a candidate for president for the Reform Party in 2000. But this was treated mostly as a publicity stunt. By the early 2010s, Donald Trump had gained notoriety for pol public political commentary, using the social media service Twitter to criticize and promote conspiracy theories about President Obama, when he wasn't offering dating advice to movie stars or complaining about soft drinks, that is. Trump mused about running for president in 2012 during a speech at CPAC, which generally solidified his position as a Republican Party political figure. And finally, in June 2015, Donald Trump announced his serious candidacy for president of the United States. Matt, your thoughts on Trump, the guy. Donald Trump is basically a tumor made out of America. <laughs> the post-war state created a lot of wealth. It created a lot of cultural institutions. It, it allowed people to live lives that they used to try in some way to express their selves. But Donald Trump is... The incarnation of all of the malignancies of America after the war, when we decided to 
take this real estate scam disguised as a country and send it worldwide. Uh, you have a guy who was born at the pinnacle of American power in its biggest city to a family made rich by the most American of endeavors, real estate speculation. He spent his entire life untouched by any limitations except for the expectations of his domineering, aloof parents and no sense of any civic responsibility. Why should he have any responsibility for anyone else? The world opens up to his touch with no effort. Power churned around him, not touching him, but giving him anything he could want. That's the problem. What could you possibly want in this situation when you are drowning in honey like this? How can you give yourself a reason to wake up? And for Trump, it was, I guess, some hollow reflection of the thing he couldn't get from his parents, which was love, <laughs> fame, people knowing his name and talking about him. Uh, and his success was not because of business acumen. He would have made more money in his life if he just took his inheritance and put it in an index fund. But because of his dogged, monomaniacal obsession with being famous, mm -hmm. he destroys fortunes and lives and is always redeemed because his name is worth too much to people who can use it to move money around. And the whole time he's doing this, he is building an identity among the American people as what success looks like. And so when it's time for people to uh, pick an avatar for the Republican Party, and at this point that means an avatar of the Republican voters... It is their dream of who they could be. <laughs> CNN is a failing pile of garbage. So here we are on the wild ride of the 2016 election. I'll just brush through the setup here. The Democratic establishment quickly congeals around former Secretary of State, Senator from New York, and First Lady Hillary Clinton. I'm just chilling in Cedar Rapids. Congeal is the word, indeed. However, hoping to reflect the desires for a more progressive candidate from the left wing of the party, Vermont Senator and self-described Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders enters the primary race. What initially seemed like a long shot or even statement candidacy quickly closed ground on Clinton and became a live competition in the primaries, with Sanders bringing Clinton to basically a draw in the Iowa caucuses, winning the New Hampshire primary, and narrowly trailing her in delegates deep into the spring. On the Republican side... While Trump's campaign initially appeared as little more than a joke or a sideshow, the huge 17-candidate Republican primary race splits establishment interest and allowed Trump's shocking and almost cult-like domination of the party's conservative base, coupled with his outrageous personality dominating media attention, to basically play the field. Trump gained an early inconsistent delegate lead over all the other goofies in the race. John Kasich! Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and who could forget poor old Jeb? Please clap. Slowly drop out and submit to Trump's lock on the party. So, Matt, this is a big one and still fairly fresh in our mind. What is your take on the 2016 election? So by 2016, you have seen the promise of the Obama presidency completely dissolve into ashes. There was no there there. Mm -hmm. The hope and change was a fraud. And everybody... At every level of government had to process every at everybody in every uh, shade of the American political spectrum had to come to terms with this reality that there was no hope. There was no change that the course we are on of declining standards of living we're seeing mm -hmm. during this era, massive drops in middle class wealth and minority wealth. The first decline in 100 years in U.S. life expectancy and a massive jump in deaths of despair and opioid overdose. But the political parties cannot absorb this disillusionment because it would reflect on the economic agenda that was powering both parties. Mm -hmm. Instead, it had to be expressed through the cultural firmament. 
and through the culture war. Uh, and so for the Democrats, you have an attempt to find some alternative to the party establishment uh, represented by Clinton. But all that can be organized around absent Obama uh, is this ideological idea of socialism, mm -hmm. which gains a lot of adherence among younger people who are uh, recently college educated, but downwardly mobile, mm -hmm. who still have investment in belief in this system, even though they have seen it break in front of their eyes, mm -hmm. uh, and more importantly, have faith in their own ability to organize and to make the world a better place. Uh, and they quickly gravitate to Sanders, as does anybody with a real live memory of the Democratic Party as a populist organ. But the center of gravity of the party at this point is older, relatively more well-off, people who survived the 08 collapse uh, intact and who have no interest in a socialist project uh, and are able to cohere around Hillary Clinton, who is a terrible candidate. Pokemon go to the polls. But who is the chosen inheritor of the Obama legacy because Biden was considered uh, a senile joke and couldn't be trusted. And Hillary Clinton had been bought off basically from attacking and undermining Obama for eight years to some degree by first being in his cabinet and then being the chosen avatar of the party. And that was enough to get her the nomination uh, because that's where the voters are in the Democratic electorate. On the Republican side, there is a similar search for identity. And that's why you have 17 candidates. Mm -hmm. uh, but this time, that incohate cultural uh, fixation among the Republican voters can finally cohere around one person, someone who is able to say things that de Republican politicians can't say because they have moved through the ranks of the party, feel disciplined by a commitment to it, and therefore know, because everybody in the Republican Party knows at this point, that you can't be too harsh on immigration. Mm -hmm. You can't speak in, in alienating language because it spooks uh, the, those gentle educated suburban voters uh, and and Latinos that we need. But it turns out that if you are able to, because you're not a politician, because you're a celebrity, because you're someone people think they know and they associate with success, and you are able to speak a language that is closer to their own thoughts about politics, which aren't screened by any of the careerist bullshit that dominates the Republican Party, what they viscerally want, which is things like a wall, between them and Mexico, defense against crumbling culture and against an other that seems to be coming for them. Uh, and he is able to just bulldoze all of these candidates, including poor Jeb, the scion of this incredibly powerful family that dictated the flow of American politics for the last 70 years, left totally impotent because nobody wants to hear that bullshit. Nobody wants to hear <laughs> the... the uh, the, the, the refrain of tax cuts. Everybody knows that this has failed. And all that's left now is to uh, embrace a politics of total catharsis. Uh, and Trump presented that. Is it too late now to say sorry? Because I'm missing more than just your body. So then... Trump gets the Republican nomination, Hillary gets the Democratic nomination, becoming the first woman to receive a major party nomination. The general election then revolves around, honestly, a bunch of petty bullshit, with Trump commanding constant media attention from his endless, outrageous, and idiotic commentary, and Clinton plagued by scandals, gaffes, and unforced errors resulting in intense media scrutiny, some warranted, some less so. 
In October, a video surfaces of Trump basically bragging about sexually assaulting women while talking to Access Hollywood host Billy Bush in 2005. I'll admit it. Whoa. I did try and fuck her. She was married. <laughs> huge news there. No, no, Nancy. Yeah. No, this was marriages. And I moved on her very heavily. In fact, I took her out furniture shopping. She wanted to get some furniture. I said, I'll show you where they have some nice furniture. <laughs> I took her out furniture. I moved on her like a bitch, but I couldn't get there. And she was married. And all of a sudden, I see her. She's now got the big phony tits and everything. She's totally changed her look. I better use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. This was seen as a potentially fatal blow to an already insanely ramshackle and unstable campaign and resulted in Trump releasing perhaps the only public apology of his life. I've never said I'm a perfect person, nor pretended to be someone that I'm not. I've said and done things I regret, and the words released today on this more than a decade-old video are one of them. Anyone who knows me knows these words don't... But despite the fallout resulting in tepid condemnation from his own party, Trump's overall polling took a hit, then swiftly rebounded, illustrating a persistent kind of iron floor of support for him. By Election Day, almost all credible journalists and election wonks gave Trump a very low chance of winning. But on November 8th, 2016, Trump shockingly overperformed in a number of key states, most notably the traditional blue wall of Democratic-leaning states in the upper Midwest. And Trump won the Electoral College 304 to 227. Hillary won the popular vote by over 2%, a margin of almost 3 million votes. This is my fight song. Take back my life song. So Trump's victory here is largely because of defections from the Obama column and non-participation among former Obama voters in the areas of the country that have been hardest hit by the decline of the last 20 years or at this point yes at this point over 20 years so people who were alienated by the Democratic Party under Obama were alienated for it from for two basic reasons one a aesthetic abhorrence to its cultural values and two uh, a genuine feeling that their life got worse under fucking Obama and that things are mm-hmm. shittier than they used to be and they blame it on him or the Democrats. And everybody has some combination of a sense of material uh, alienation and also uh, cultural alienation. And in these states is where those came together the hardest, where people were uh, these white working class voters were culturally alienated by what the D- Democratic Party was standing for and also materially alienated from the, what the Democratic Party was doing to them. Mm-hmm. And they were, I think they would have been happy to vote for Bernie Sanders, but with the party represented by the avatar of NAFTA, there was no positive force among, there, there was no uh, positive message for the Democratic Party there. So it was entirely based on keeping Trump from being president. It was expecting mm-hmm. people to be so horrified by the idea of Trump as president that they would put aside all other considerations and vote for him. And in a lot of places, they did. But in these places where their commit, where people's commitment to the niceties of politics by the expectations set by the media uh, has been totally undermined. In these places of the country, there's a greater and greater sense that what they're hearing from their mass media and from their political class is bullshit because none of it ever corresponds to their lived experience of immiseration. And so 
either they don't vote, which was which led uh, to a huge drop in key precincts among African-American support mm-hmm. for uh, Clinton versus Obama. And then in some cases voting for Trump instead, because the moral panic of the uh, campaign against him, both in the media and amongst uh, and from the Clinton campaign uh, and from the pop culture that was just horrified by Trump's social views, uh, they were not alienated by that. And in fact, they were probably in, they probably enjoyed the fact that the people that they were alienated from were so horrified by him. Uh, and so with one side only mobilized in the places where they basically didn't need to be big <laughs> cities in in uh, coastal states and not mobilized at all in places that they needed to be smaller cities in Midwestern states, uh, Trump was able to win. But of course, the only thing that really allows for this to put Trump in the White House is the anti-majoritarian nature of the constitutional order, the, the electoral college for one thing, but mm-hmm. also malapportionment of electoral college votes uh, mm-hmm. away from actual uh, population centers. And that is what, and also voter suppression efforts put in at the state level where Republicans control access to the levers of uh, electoral regulation. And and those things all come together to uh, to allow this guy who was imposed on the party by his by the party's base uh, and who the party smart folks all thought was going to doom them to save their asses against their will because it turns out things weren't think things weren't the way they thought they were they, they you don't have to appeal to this eternal moderate in the middle uh, and mm-hmm. this eternal uh, this Latino population if the Democratic Party is going to continue to offer nothing but platitudes you will see a continued demoralization of the Democratic electorate that can be made up for by motivating those people who are most energized by Trump's cultural presentation, which are uh, downwardly mobile, either in their real material conditions or in their mind, middle-class white people who are experiencing for the first time an uncertain future and are fucking terrified of it. And so Donald Trump... The upwardly failing businessman, notable most recently as a TV presenter, the oldest person ever elected president, the first president elected with absolutely zero experience in any elected or appointed office or the military, becomes the 45th president of the United States. His inauguration is marked by an anemic public attendance coupled with one of the largest single-day protests in the country's history against it. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities. Rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation. An education system flush with cash, but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge. And the crime and the gangs and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Trump gives a dark and aggressive speech depicting a decaying country, gravely railing against American carnage, then gets to his task of making America great again by bitching about his inauguration crowd size to the media. Donald 
But Trump's presidency was characterized by a sense of extreme chaos and instability permeating the administration, federal government, and especially the media reaction. The media held a constant sense of emergency throughout the term, with liberal media warning of the unprecedented nature of the president's actions, warning of growing authoritarianism and potential slides into fascism, and conservative media offering blind, belligerent defense of the president's actions, bordering on messianic depictions of a genius politician under constant assault for his superhuman quest to save America. Just Four straight years of near apocalypse for all involved, either damnation for liberals or rapture for conservatives. But I think the real story we want to look at here is one of continuity. Matt? So the Trump administration is marked by this insistent, highly pitched frequency of terror and emergency among all segments of political media. These are this is Ragnarok. Mm -hmm. On the ground, though, Trump is governing like a Republican would. And it is interesting because I do really believe that Trump had the ability, given his position, his unique historical position as a president of the United States who emerged on top of the administrative state that we have now created, this massive machine, but outside of its structures of mm -hmm. recruitment and discipline. Mm -hmm. One of the big things that keeps the system working is the fact that nobody is in a position of power who cannot be depended on because of their past actions, mostly working their way through incentive structures dictated by these parties uh, and by the political bureaucracy. Donald Trump was able, through his fame, his brand, to dominate the campaign from a position of totally free media. Trump barely spent any money running for president because he didn't need to. His every word was news because he was famous. Mm -hmm. And that meant that he could just bulldoze through the primary process, ignore all shibboleths, talk about things like jobs going away, talk about things like how bad the Iraq war was, things other Republicans were disciplined away from saying by their very natures, uh, and then, boom, become president. But the flip side of that, the flip side of that is that because he only ran because he's a narcissistic maniac, because he wanted to have people talk about him every day, because Donald Obama had made fun of him. Uh, during his birther days for uh, being a joke and his need to prove that wrong, his insecurity, he had absolutely no interest and he had no, uh, he had no real agenda when he took power. He had no group around him of ideologically committed people beyond a few whack jobs like Stephen Ban like Steve Bannon, which meant that when it was time to staff this government, he had to staff it entirely with creatures that are that did emerge from the machinery of the Republican Party and everybody on Capitol Hill were disciplined and shaped by the Republican Party. So they carried out a policy that was very much like what a Republican would do. Cut taxes, cut regulation, uh, keep up the war to the degree that you have to, uh, but otherwise leave things basically as they stand. The, the apocalyptic tone was entirely around Trump as a person and his mm -hmm. personal interventions in his government and his personal transgressions against norms. And that did lead to a massive media response, a, a rejection of him. All the white blood cells in the American political system <laughs> fired off to get this guy out. And his supporters saw it and became more and more alienated from those very institutions because they saw them as unfairly going after Trump. Uh, and they 
invested his presidency with this significance as a threat to power, this threat to the establishment that they were now alienated from. Uh, meanwhile, people on the left saw him as an embodiment of the right's threat to democracy. Meanwhile, he just governed like a regular ass Republican. So speaking of being a regular ass Republican, let's look at the 2017 tax bill, uh, basically the single large scale domestic accomplishment of the Trump administration. The bill would be the largest single reduction in corporate tax rates in American history, bringing down the highest rates from 35 percent to just 21 percent. This was coupled with significant tax cuts for the rich and more modest cuts to low income taxes. The bill also slashed the estate tax and zeroed out Obamacare's individual mandate, effectively removing that health care law's mechanism for bringing individuals into the health insurance marketplace. In the end, the bill would cost almost $1.5 trillion. Trump would also continually tout deregulation as one of his administration's accomplishments. It appears the true scale and rate of deregulation compared to previous administrations can still be debated, but certainly the continued focus on workplace, environmental, and welfare state protections was notable. So while this is just going on, the churn of Republican agenda items being turned into policy, Mitch McConnell seeding the federal judiciary with uh, ideological conservatives, Trump is focused on his own uh, personal struggle with the media, personal struggle with this cultural resistance to him, uh, and orients all of his politics around big signposts of of his identity, like the wall. Mm -hmm. Uh, Building the wall becomes the sine qua non of his domestic policy because it is emblematic. It is symbolic. And physical. And, And then there is a government shutdown around the wall and the funding of the wall because as it becomes this shibboleth for Trump, it also becomes a shibboleth for Democrats. Resisting the wall becomes as crucial to their political identity as Repub- as building the wall is for Republicans. Even though uh, the wall itself is just, a, for the most part, a ineffective boondoggle that is typic- <laughs> that, well, typical of most projects under Trump, just enriches contractors and doesn't actually do any of the things that people uh, thought it was going to do, except destroy some butterfly habitats. <laughs> oh, I remember the poor butterfly habitats. But that's because Trump does not see himself, while president, as pre- as wielding power. He spends his presidency watching himself be president, watching the reviews of him as a man, basically. Reading the comments. Uh, and then getting mad at them. That that's That's it. And he is like Reagan, just this empty vessel with no real convictions. The difference is, is that Reagan was happy to be a pawn. He was he was a he was an actor. Show me where the spot is and I'll meet my I'll hit my mark. Trump is a reality TV guy. He is someone who is famous for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he has to be in charge. So he doesn't allow policy to go on around him the way that Reagan does. He insists on being part of it and occasionally makes uh, very radical interventions in uh negotiations just to say that he did and fucks things up a bunch just to show that he's in charge. But for the most part, he is content to watch himself be president. Uh, And that is because he has, like the rest of us, abdicated any real belief that we hold political power. And even in the office of the president, there is no real power. We have a situation where we're looking very strongly at sinks and showers and other elements of bathrooms where you turn the faucet on in areas where there's tremendous amounts of water, where the water rushes out to sea because you could never handle it. And you don't get any water. You turn on the faucet, you don't get any water. They take a shower and water comes dripping out. It's dripping out very 
quietly tripping out. People are flushing toilets 10 times, 15 times, as opposed to once. They end up using more water. So EPA is looking at that very strongly, at my suggestion. So the first three years are a constant public sturm und drang over the administration and the high peak of liberal distress over policies, norms, violations, and lawlessness in the administration. Trump became the third president impeached by the House in December 2019, but with partisan lines increasingly calcified by the beginning of 2020, Trump's approval rating remained remarkably stagnant. He was polling basically in a dead heat against potential Democratic Party nominees. But then in late 2019, the currently strong economy began to show signs of sputtering with organizations like the IMF declaring a synchronized slowdown. And then on January 9th, 2020, the World Health Organization announces a mysterious coronavirus-related pneumonia detected in Wuhan, China. It's shit like this that makes you sort of understand how people spiral into conspiratorial thinking. Because if you're a Republican in early 2019, you're pretty confident that Trump is going to get reelected. And honestly, you probably should be. Now, yes, the economy was headed towards some sort of correction, but when it was going to hit and how that would have affected the electorate is still up in the air. If the campaign ended up being a battle between Trump as an incumbent and a Democratic Party that at that point had nipped the Bernie Sanders insurgency in the bud, could only organize itself as a horror at Trump, as as a commitment to uh, fighting a culture war, then the same dynamics that had won Trump the presidency then would still be in effect and would have likely led him to win relatively comfortably. Because there, at this point, we have gotten to uh, – because we've gotten to a point now where uh, the polarization between the two parties and their supporters is such that – there is no such thing as bad press, basically. There is no such thing as, as a thing that Trump could do or say that could scandalize decent middle-of-the-road people because they mm -hmm. were increasingly absent from the electorate. Uh, if you just have partisans, uh, and there's roughly the same um, number of them in terms of electoral power and influence because of malapportionment, then y you can keep saying whatever you want, let Trump be Trump, and it will probably lead him to... Yes, mobilize the Democrats, but just as much mobilize the Republicans. And meanwhile, people who only care about putting food on the table are more likely to just stay home because what mm -hmm. are they even what is the point even of politics? You have to have an emotional investment in it to care enough to vote and pay attention. And more and more people by that point would have checked out. So a cycle that would have helped Trump. Then coronavirus emerges and Trump shows that there is actual there are actual competency uh impacts mm -hmm. of the presidency they don't have the power to shape things but they do have the power to respond to things and this is a thing that they could respond to and they responded as badly as you would expect a government run by disinterested monomaniacs would <laughs> everybody for themselves everybody putting his hand in each other's pocket as frank sabatka said but of course the democrats assumption that this botched response would lead to a mass stampede away from trump the way that there was a mass stampede away from Bush after 2008 did not happen because by this point, faith in institutional logics and narratives had been so undermined. An alternative to formal networks of knowledge had now been created by the Internet. 
that you didn't have to accept the narrative as expressed to you. You could recreate reality on the fly. And so even as Trump manifestly botches the coronavirus response, as honestly, he did worse than others might have, but the basic incompetence was built in to the decayed, corrupted neoliberal state by then. Uh, but as he manifestly bungled it, his bungling becomes another culture war issue. And mm-hmm. the question of how to respond to coronavirus becomes a culture war issue. And questions that in previous generations would have had objective answers, like <laughs> should you wear a mask? Does the vaccine work? Become completely fraught and politicized because everybody at this point is making their own reality because there is no justified reason to believe what you're being told. And there is no alternative that is not partisan and, and micro-targeted. And so those, those politics becomes an aggre- aggregation of these micro-targeted realities correlating around the only polls that matter, the representatives of the two-party system. So a global pandemic takes home, causing disruption from the macroeconomic scale down to the personal lives of every citizen of America. And in the midst of this global pandemic, 2020 also saw the largest moment of sustained protest in the country's history, with between 15 and 26 million people taking to the streets between May and July to demonstrate against police violence and racial inequality. Motivated by the police murder of George Floyd in May, but shaped by the ongoing Black Lives Matter movement against racially motivated police violence that had been growing since the murder of Trayvon Martin in 2013. These protests took place in communities of all sizes in all 50 states and range from unremarkably peaceful to riots in sustained states of civil unrest. Response to the protests became a topic during the campaign, with response polarizing predictably along party lines. So by the summer of 2020, you have had this monstrously traumatic incident that's capping a slow slide uh, of immiseration that's that's been defining the, the year since 2008, but there is no political vocabulary for it because we are caught in this sterile partisan cycle. And so when the George Floyd footage is released, this act of violence is able to catalyze uh, as a defining issue domestically uh, the treatment of African-Americans in this country as sort of the most consistently and persistently oppressed people in this country at a time when the left absent of class project has oriented itself around supporting and defending the rights of the most oppressed, that police brutality becomes the organizing issue because it is a symptom of this greater inequality that can theoretically be addressed from within the system we have. And so anger orients around it. And this is also after months of meaningless, fruitless quarantine in urban areas where people had people who still believed what the government said went home and listened to science uh, and fought the pandemic or went out into the pandemic and risked their lives uh, and none of it to any uh, avail it, it they did not stop the virus they did not save lives and the economy which had collapsed for a minute there uh, in after the first shock of coronavirus at the markets uh, was recapitalized just after two th- as as it had been in 2008 by an instant injection of federal money to the top mm-hmm. uh, to restabilize the economy. Essentially, what you had was 2008 again, but this time no fight over a tarp. 
No struggle to find a response. <laughs> no political issue really at all. Uh, a, a massive bill that is rushed through Congress without much of a discussion uh, and enacted beyond, beyond political debate uh, and which has the result of furthering this liquefaction of the American economy. And in that context, uh, a lot of people decided to express their, their resistance you know, in the way that they knew how, which is uh, uh, entering the American civic tradition of protest. Uh, mm -hmm. And that triggers this descent into uh, paranoid recrimination between these two cultural sides now, where the suburban white conservatives see uh, the unrest around police brutality as an attack on them, as, as the furthering of a domestic civil war that both that it now seems like it's both happening and is inevitable to intensify. Uh, and that defines the next two years of politics and is still the dominant register is this uh, keen of anxiety of the other coming to get you. And it's all, it all happens with, it is all initiated by the stunning catastrophe of COVID-19 that is totally, uh, that cannot be, cannot be effectively addressed by any institution we currently have. So at this point, we've gotten a little ahead of ourselves here, but this is the context in which the 2020 presidential election takes place. And Matt, I believe you have a uh, conceptual framework here before we get into the details. So if we accept that the partisan contest between the, the Democrats and Republicans at this point is a manifestation of a civil war within the declining middle class between those who uh, have secured a ac some sort of professional job through academic meritocracy uh, and also have homes, uh, and those people who uh, are connected to more traditional, uh, uh, and those who are essentially uh, business people, small businessmen, entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. uh, and who also have their own homes, uh, and people who pe people in short who for the vast majority of their lives the American social contract was a benefit for them. Mm -hmm. They gained by it. They understood themselves to be on a team that was, uh, uh, that was headed in the right direction. Uh, and since 2008 specifically, there's, there was an increased sensation amongst these people that the frontier was finally ending, mm -hmm. that the closure, that the, the, the frontier was finally closing the promise of, uh, of future security for them. And most importantly, their children was going away mm -hmm. uh, and that the promise of that yeoman autonomy that comes with home ownership was also going away mm -hmm. we, that, that there was a future of full proletarianization uh, and because the people who make up the majority of our voters in this country are not workers no matter what their jobs are but are consumers mm -hmm. they cannot confront the reality of this crisis they must imagine it neurotically as the death of America. They are processing the mortality of this country. Uh, and Trump represents the denial of this, mm -hmm. the rage against extinguishment, the, the voice that says, I will not moderate, I will not accept what is, I will not moderate myself, my preferences, I will not accept limitations on myself because I don't have to. Even as the evidence mounts, that the end is near. That only means the intensity of the rage and frustration increases. Mm -hmm. So that's one half of this uh, nervous breakdown of the middle class that is defining the 2020 election. 
But then, who is he running against? Because as the 2020 Democratic primary starts with a crowded field, notably dominated early by the two oldest members, Senator Bernie Sanders, attempting to reconstruct his surprise 2016 success with a more thoroughly planned campaign, reaching out to working class voters left out of the political system, and a man we've mentioned a few times before, a guy who'd been in the mix for almost 50 years, who sensed that now, this moment, was his time. And that was, of course... I'm best equipped to beat Donald Trump. That's what your opponent said. Vice President Biden. Why are you a better choice than your opponent? I got hairy legs. Hairy legs that turn blonde in the sun. In the sun. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. was born November 20th, 1942 in Scranton, Pennsylvania, to parents of Irish and English descent. His father had made a good living as an executive at a company that made sealant for merchant marine ships during World War II, but after the war experienced financial hardships. During this time, the Biden kids were sent to live with their grandparents, but the family eventually found footing and moved to Wilmington, Delaware, where his father worked as a used car salesman. So Joe grew up middle class and enrolled in University of Delaware in 1961. There he received mostly C's and D's, but an A in physical education and an F in ROTC. While in college, though attendees were not permitted to have cars, Joe's dad would often lend him different convertibles every weekend. A classmate said that, besides being very cool and dressing right, showing up in a convertible, he had us all beat eight ways to Sunday. God, can my dad drive a car. Oof. Joe then went on to get a law degree from Syracuse University, placing 76th in a class of 85 and almost failing out after it was discovered he had plagiarized five out of 15 pages of a paper. But he graduates in 1968 and moves back to Wilmington and is admitted to the Delaware Bar. In Wilmington, Joe takes a few lower-level legal jobs, clerking at law firms, working briefly as a public defender. He bounced around political parties based on who his boss was and how he felt about the governor's politics, opposing the Democratic governor's anti-civil rights position. But he also opposed Richard Nixon and was drawn into Democratic politics by local fixers looking to revitalize the state party. Joe soon ran for a seat on the New Castle County Council, which he won in 1970. He ran as a liberal Democrat, advocating public housing in the suburban area, even in the face of being called an N-word lover by angry constituents over the phone. Uh, newspapers at the time referred to him as Delaware's JFK. In 1966, Joe had married fellow Syracuse student Nelia Hunter. By 1971, they had three children, Joseph R. Bo Biden III, Robert Hunter Biden, and Naomi Christina Amy Biden. Joe immediately set about moving up the political ladder and mounts a long-shot challenge to near-retirement incumbent Republican Senator J. Caleb Boggs. Running a shoestring campaign based around his family, his own personableness, and growing opposition to entrenched Republican business-as-usual politics, Biden pulls off a shocking upset and wins. At age 29 at the time of the election and 30 when he took office, Biden would be the sixth youngest senator in U.S. history. Uh, but most of the other five are early 19th century guys from when they weren't really counting, uh, including Henry Clay. Then, on December 18th, 1972, just weeks after the election, Joe Biden's wife, Nelia, and his three children were Christmas shopping, driving their station wagon, when they were struck by a semi-truck. Nelia and his infant daughter, Amy, were killed, and Bo and Hunter were hospitalized with injuries. 
While Joe remained by his children's bedside, he was sworn in for his first term as senator in the Wilmington Hospital. Throughout his career in Senate, Biden would commute via Amtrak an hour and 30 minutes each way to be home with his sons in Delaware. In 1975, he would meet his second wife, Jill Tracy Jacobs, a high school teacher at the time. They married in 1977 and would have one daughter, Ashley, in 1981. Much later, his son, Beau, who goes on to serve in the army in Iraq, then be elected attorney general of Delaware, would die tragically of brain cancer in 2015 at age 46. His other son, Hunter, would deal very publicly with addiction and scandal in the run-up to the 2020 election. These very tragic events in Joe's personal life would become an essential part of his public character. More on Biden's Senate career in a moment, but Matt, let's pause to get your thoughts on Joe Biden, the guy, and his political context here. Joe Biden is the last generation of American of Democratic machine politicians, the guys who didn't need to go through the meritocratic machine. They didn't have to go to good schools and go through the, the intellectual ranks in order to gain uh, influence within the party. He got his influence by slapping backs and going to pancake breakfasts. Mm -hmm. And he represents uh, the party having grown up in the lap of American possibility, the son of a, of a hustling, hard drinking car salesman who got the benefits of the New Deal upward mobility for the working class. Uh, who identified the Democratic Party with those upward prospects and identified that that party with his potential upward prospects because he knew how to go into a room and smile at people and, and knew how to remember people's names. And he knew how to smile and he knew how to look like a hunk. He was a goddamn stud. He knew how to get people to like him, basically. Uh, and so he immediately took to the task of gaining I wouldn't even say power because at the time that he's gaining influence in the party, uh, the New Deal aperture is closing. He runs as a Watergate baby to reform government, is sworn in in the hospital after the death of his wife and child. He has this tragedy that forge, forms the core of his approach to politics. But he understood that any influence he could get within the party was at the sufferance of capital because he was from Delaware which is a microcosm of America's political reality. It is a democratic system, uh, a bipartisan alliance dominated by credit card and insurance companies to a complete extent so that Biden understood very early that politics is about keeping the boys in the, in the boardrooms happy with your legislation and then going out on the stump and keeping the regular voters happy at the pancake breakfasts. So Biden starts his 36 years in U.S. Senate in January 1973. Biden started out as an arms control guy, doggedly pursuing both SALT treaties. However, though he touted himself as a civil rights liberal, he almost immediately gets wrapped up in opposition to the race integration busing, bowing to strong constituent pressure and advocating anti-busing measures in the Senate. In the early 80s, Biden became the ranking minority member of the Judiciary Committee and shepherded the harsh 1984 crime bill through the Senate, though being a particular proponent of the more celebrated Violence Against Women Act. During the 1991 confirmation hearings of Clarence Thomas, Biden came under fire for refusing to allow further witnesses to support Anita Hill's allegation of sexual assault. In the 90s, he backed Clinton's Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy and supported the Defense of Marriage Act. Biden was a chief supporter of the 1994 crime bill. 
He voted for the Afghanistan and Iraq invasions in the early 2000s, and in his least plur act, supported the 2003 Rave Act, creating harsher sentencing around ecstasy and other drugs. Always a fierce guardian of Delaware interests, he would support laws favored by Delaware banks to make it harder for individuals to file Chapter 7 bankruptcy. He would even go out of his way to put pressure on Russia after they halted import of U.S. chickens, a major industry in Delaware. As we covered last episode, Biden ran for president in 1988 and got owned for his plagiarism thing. He ran again in 2008, but dropped out after coming in fifth in the Iowa caucuses. He and Barack supposedly had not gotten along in the Senate, but in August 2008, he was announced to be Barack Obama's running mate. So, Matt, what do we make of Biden's political career? So Biden is the machine Paul in the generation after the death of working class influence on the Democratic Party. So there's there's a period where there's just the machine. Then there is the machine plus the working uh, plus the labor movement, basically. And then Biden comes on the scene at the precise moment that the Democratic Party machine cuts its umbilical cord uh, that's connecting it to the labor movement. You had a period where uh, the Democratic Party was funded mostly by corporate capital interests and then from below with kickbacks. Then during the New Deal era, a period where the uh, labor movement is a key source of power, institutional power for the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. uh, and then as Biden emerges on the scene is it's precisely as working class influence on and funding for the Democratic Party go away. And this is and Biden then comes into office as the Democratic Party reorient reorients towards corporate donors becomes a party that is more explicitly engaged with the corporate world. Of course, it had always been a capital party, but before capital had been at the table with labor, increasingly as Biden was in the Senate, the voice of the labor movement is completely drowned out. And his priorities as senator reveal that he is a financial deregulatory and tax cut aficionado. He is a foreign policy hawk. He couples that with right-wing culture war mm -hmm. on things like drugs and crime. He is a perpetual runner for president. He runs twice and is badly owned. But because Obama is relatively inexperienced and dark, uh, he is uh, he picks Biden off the scrap heap and dusts him off to give him some establishment legitimacy. And without that choice, Biden is definitely done. He, he's, he's Chris Dodd by now, if it hadn't been for uh, Obama's choice to reassure the establishment that, yes, in fact, he was on that their team. And and uh, he did that successfully. Uh, and but during his vice presidency, uh, Biden had no real power and Obama clearly did not respect him because Obama <laughs> was the. Meritocrat. He's the guy who went to the fancy schools. He was the guy who got the A's on all of his paper. And so for a rough and tumble machine hack like Biden appeared to him, uh, much like Johnson appeared to the Kennedys as this hayseed who needed to be <laughs> ignored and patronized. And in fact, Obama talked him out of running uh, against Hillary in 2016 because everybody understood that Hillary was the next candidate. They didn't want Biden and his gaffes mucking up the campaign. Of course, everyone very quickly understood after 2016 that Biden would have won if he'd run in 2016. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is why he ran. Uh, and he ran the same sort of incompetent, 
grasping campaign he had only before, only, of course, even less mentally sharp at this point. But he wins because the party has to defeat the threat of Bernie Sanders. They have to repel the socialist uh, attack on their institutions, which are now fully completely corporatized. And they uh, the party throws up a bunch of uh, inheritors of Obama for different interest groups. Would you like a female Obama? Would you like a gay Obama? What about a uh, Minnesota Obama? What, what do you need people want? <laughs> but the the peop- the energy that had gone to Obama in 2008 was now largely on Sanders' side. The only people who were really interested in this Obama 2.0 were relatively well-off younger people who do not make a significant su- chunk of the Democratic primary electorate. Those are the relatively well-off, older, more conservative people who still identify with the Democratic Party, who have not been alienated from the Democratic Party, who have a some sort of investment in the party. And so they voted for the candidate who at that point stood for the party, specifically the last time the party had been in power under Obama, the salad days in their mind. But that is Biden's position as this geriatric placeholder who is the white man in the room left to stand in for a Democratic Party that has lost all institutional initiative because it has been totally hollowed out over the course of the last 30 years. And then so we come back to the election of 2020. Despite apparent underperformance in a crowded field of primary contestants, uh, voter preference gravitated towards a seemingly safe and well-known candidate uh, for the reasons that Matt just described in a year dominated by panicked revulsion to Donald Trump and elite support rallied behind Joe Biden. As the primary campaign lurched into the global pandemic, the opposing campaigns collapsed and Joe Biden secured the nomination with relative ease in March, becoming the oldest nominee by a major party for president. As we said above, if Donald Trump represents one way of dying, then Joe Biden is another. Yes. Joe Biden's pitch to the American people, specifically to the more well-off knowledge economy suburbanites who make up the base of the voters that yes america is dying yes the prospect of upward mobility has been foreclosed but it's okay we we have to accept our decline we have to use our inside voices and we have to maybe we can mourn but we will mourn together that that was essentially the pitch of uh of biden he's able also to gain support just as in contrast to Trump's frantic uh, and undermining approach to the virus, because there is, while all this is happening, a scientific consensus around what to do about the virus. And the people in the suburbs who went to college are more likely to invest that with meaning, even if Mm -hmm. a lot of other people in the country have completely discarded believing in anything that comes out of any organ of culture or media. Uh, the people more likely to vote in the more important states still put some faith in the objectivity of these things and are able to judge Trump's coronavirus response in that light. And Biden is able to stand in as just probably better than that. <laughs> well, culturally, 
presenting them with the option of turning down the volume on this raging Mm -hmm. culture war because it doesn't really matter. It's already over. Relax. Ease into the bathtub. (laughs) Sit down next to each Edgar G. Robinson and watch this nice footage of these deer frolicking in a field. The 2020 general election revolves basically around coronavirus and fitness. The ongoing pandemic and Trump's mismanagement becomes the de facto referendum, while Biden accused Trump of being a rude and incompetent maniac and Trump accused Biden of being a slow-witted radical leftist. Trump continued to campaign vigorously in person throughout the pandemic, leading to public health fears, and Trump himself tested positive for covid on October 2nd. Parenthetically, the funniest day in human history. Yes. Though he quickly recovered and resumed campaigning, you know, I can't even say for sure it affected his campaign, but it sure was funny. Oh my God. It was the funniest like week ever. <laughs> yes. In the end, despite massive debates over election procedure and security with new reliance on non-in-person voting, the election itself goes off without substantial irregularities, and Joe Biden wins a sturdy victory, 306 to 232 electoral votes and over 4% margin of the popular vote. Trump would initially refuse to concede defeat, enacting a series of increasingly desperate, ineffective, and ultimately embarrassing attempts to overturn the election legally or through pressuring state legislatures. This all culminates in a group of his supporters storming the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, in some kind of poorly conceived attempt to support the president or overturn the election or something. Though causing intense backlash among liberals and ultimately resulting in a number of deaths, this action leads to little. Don't forget, they impeached him again. After he left oh, office. Yes. Very funny. And then on January 20th, 2021, Joe Biden was inaugurated the 46th president of the United States of America. The end for now. Okay, not really. We can't just end it right there. We've got the next nine months of Biden plus the entire future history of America. Matt, what does the future hold for Joe Biden and the presidency of the United States of America. Well, the immediate future for Joe Biden is death. And <laughs> I would say that in the medium term, the future for the presidency, the United States of, of America as a political organ is, I'm not going to say terminal, but it's it's iffy. Huh? Uh, because we have reached a point now where uh, we have fully liquidated or we're in the process of fully liquidating the American economy, as in last vestiges of non-capital or mixed capital ownership, getting rid of those pesky intermediate classes that define capitalism until this point, and getting to the final state of full polarization between capitalists and workers, uh, which is the state of wage slavery that so repulsed the Yankee yeoman who fought the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it has finally come. It, it was denied. The political reckoning was denied by years of free real estate giving way towards bonanzas of redistribution that smoothed away political conflict and allowed the rickety constitutional order to continue on. But the treats are running out now. The 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 final the 2008 really was the final turn of the screw for what uh, the direction of. Uh, home ownership in this country would be the coronavirus is only excited. Every every current accelerates this process of proletarianization, uh, and it is in a context where the partisan politics is more 
a part of people's identity than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. But those identities are less materially grounded than they've ever been. We, we have lost anything like a class consciousness at any level of American society. We are dominated by lumpen ruling class, lumpen bourgeois, lumpen workers who do not process the world through any lens other than as an individual consumer within a mediated spectacle of political participation. Mm-hmm. And thanks to the existence of a social media sphere that allows for instantaneous access to a fully curated version of reality, faith in the institutions that were built up over the course of the New Deal period with credulity, with public investment Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. their uh, usefulness and effectiveness and truthfulness has been completely eroded. We We are governing with institutions, private, public, media, cultural, that can no longer marshal consent from the American mm-hmm. people. Uh, people are forced to create their own narratives to uh, describe what is happening around them, and then they bring them together into these communities of believers that are always, at every moment, referring to this greater conflict contest between Democrats and Republicans on mm-hmm. the corpse of a American economy that is in a terminal freefall and in a final state of uh, cannibalism. And in that context, faith in elections disappears. Willingness to adhere to custom in every respect disappears. Uh, and if we assume a continued decline in American standard of living and uh, prospects for the future, uh, then that pressure on these institutions that cannot accommodate the current crisis uh, and can only reproduce a phantom politics that we are all invested in to the point of life or death mm-hmm. is only going to increase. Uh, and I don't know when the pressure gives out, but uh, and I don't know honestly how the system can accommodate uh, because it has been totally detached from the task of governing. It is now in fully attached to the task of extracting profit at the end of the line of profitability in the world system. What this means for the presidency is that the only people who will seek the presidency are those who are totally emptied of any consideration other than the most baseborn narcissism. We've had now uh, three presidents in a row defined by their maniacal narcissistic pursuit of self-advancement, but because so much, so little power is left in the office, uh, they are becoming decreasingly mentally cogent uh, <laughs> because they have less to do. Uh, because the part, the power, the the office has been drained of real power. Uh, all that can be done is pantomime power, and that will either it it will drive you crazy unless you're too gone already to notice. So that though that's those are who are going to see seek the presidency uh, in the future. Well, on that cheery note, this ends our comprehensive history of the U.S. presidents, but not the end of this podcast series. 
We have a few bonus episodes coming out over the next few weeks, deep dives on specific eras of the presidency, some fun stuff on the president and media and presidential campaigns, and of course, our final thoughts, and if you're lucky, official presidential rankings. So stay tuned, but mostly thank you so much for listening. And hey, let's have a hearty fail to the chief in this hell of presidents. Presidents is produced by me, Chris Wade, with our co-editor, Nick Quaz. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds. Additional music for this episode by Justin K. Comer and by Blackout Princess, whose music you can find at blackoutprincess.bandcamp.com and by Alessandro Takeshi, whose album Songs About Cars is available at alessandrotakeshi.bandcamp.com and by Marcus Parrish, who you can find on YouTube as Raw Dog News. Our episode art is, as always, by Branson Reese, whose new animated series Swan Boy will be part of the FX show Cake, premiering Thursday, September 30th. Join us next week as we go back to where it all began and take a deeper look at the founding era. Founding era.